There has been stepped-up violence against blacks in various parts of the country. In part one of this special report, we dealt with the murders and disappearance of 17 black children in Atlanta. This program probes a new twist in the violence against blacks. In December, six black men in New York City were stabbed in one day. Four died. Within a period of three weeks last fall, four blacks in Buffalo were shot in the head within 36 hours, and two black cab drivers were killed and their hearts were removed from their bodies. In January, two black men were stabbed to death in Buffalo and Rochester, and three others were attacked. All of the victims were black men, and the attacker in all of the cases was described by police as a white male. I'm Tony Brown. In a moment, part two of, quote, is there a national conspiracy against black? When you talk to people on Jefferson Avenue, you get a range of reactions and a range of theories. But there's one common denominator. Everybody is angry. What have you found as you move around as a newspaper editor on the part of blacks? I mean, in addition to being afraid, which is understandable, uh, what do you find in terms of, of, of the mood? Well, not so much fear, Tony, as caution. There's never been a state of fear. There's never been a reign of fear in Buffalo, even at the height of the killings. If anything, people were ready to go to war. And the only thing that's kept the lid on Buffalo has been the weather. Had it been in the summer months, I really believe Buffalo would have exploded. And if, in fact, these killings continue into the summer or spring, I believe that Buffalo will explode. The police are not doing their job, you know, for a sake, you know, like... They don't have to worry about it. If this individual comes in this area or, you know, like or anywhere in the vicinity, they don't have to worry about it because he will be taken care of. While tensions are mounting in Buffalo's black community. Angry, frustrated, unsafe. That's how residents living on the east side of Buffalo, New York, describe how they're feeling. It's been one month since a gunman opened fire at a grocery store there. A racist attack targeting black shoppers. Ten people were killed. The community is coping with tragedy, but also the very practical loss of that tops friendly market, which remains closed for now. The 18-year-old man accused of killing 10 black people at a Buffalo grocery store was in court today. He entered a not guilty plea on charges of domestic terrorism and first-degree murder. In addition to the fiery criticism the district attorney was taking from black leaders, his office also heard from citizens who were outraged over the investigation for starkly different reasons. He received complaints from people who felt that too much time and resources were being consumed by the probe. A few were blatantly hateful. One particularly virulent letter read, in part, What is the matter with the people of Buffalo? Five members of the despicable nigger race are killed and the town goes absolutely schizophrenic. I didn't see the town declare Unity Day for the multitude of white cops murdered by niggers and all the elderly couples and singles beaten or robbed by niggers, including me. Damn them. 
Let them know the fear we've experienced for years at their hands. I am seeing, along with a large number of others, a sad case of nigger coddling, reverse discriminatory treatment. I hope he gets 20 more before you catch him. It'll make life a lot more bearable for all of us. The cows, uh, again, same thing that we've done. We've had so many programs, deliberately so, on Buffalo, New York, West New York, since May of this year. Again, the reason making sure we understand why the tragedy took place and that we do not forget the victims. Aaron Salter, Andre McNeil, Celestine Cheney, Geraldine Talley, Hayward Patterson, Catherine Massey, Margus Morrison, Pearl Young, Roberta Drury, Ruth Whitfield. Again, the cows, Gusty Renegade, in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Monday, July 11, 2022. So I have been told. Uh, we should be here for the book club Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, chugging right along Catherine Pelinero's Absolute Madness, super important portion of Buffalo history. Anyway, as it relates to <clears throat> the Tops Massacre, May of this year, the context of white supremacy is the syllabus not even close. WBFO they've done great content had great guests uh, if we had any of the victims I'd say that is about the only difference if we nabbed some of the victims to come and share directly about their experience what they saw what they've dealt with subsequently that's about it but to be on the other side of the continent we are the syllabus so adding to it today uh, we have already spoken with Anna Blatto talked about her research, so-called segregation, the history of Buffalo. We talked with Matt Greida, 50 years as a journalist at the Buffalo News uh, and author of Joey 22. We spoke with Frank E. Dobson Jr., author of Rendered Invisible and Buffalo Native. Uh, we spoke with Dr. Sean Lay, Hooded Nights on the Niagara the Ku Klux Klan in Buffalo, New York. We spoke with Neil Krauss, Dr. Neil Krauss, talked about his book Race, Neighborhoods, and Community Power, Buffalo Politics, 1934 to 1997. And I already said the book club, Absolute Madness. We are the syllabus on what happened in May of this year, Eastside, Buffalo, Top's grocery store and it's not close adding to the syllabus today uh, our guest interestingly on his faculty page I'll give you the credentials and then I'll tell you what it says on his faculty page his credentials he has a focus on community development affordable housing and education policy one of our listeners I've been doing so much or we have covered so much content on the history 
uh, and development of Buffalo, New York, West New York, really, but Buffalo specifically, some of our listeners said, hey, I'm going to take old Gus T up on what he said. Go to the library, university and college libraries, do some research, shared other reports with old Gus T. Uh, and he shared one report, and then I ended up going and looking at uh, several uh, different reports uh, that we will try to talk about today. Uh, so just to give you some of the flavor. So one, a book he co-authored, Affordable Housing in U.S. Shrinking Cities from Neighborhoods of Despair to Neighborhoods of Opportunity, question mark, book, right? Uh, and then a report. Now, this is the second one that I found. I said, oh, wow, we have to talk about this, too. William Worthy's concept of institutional rape revisited anchor institutions and residential displacement in Buffalo, New York. He has lots of other work as well, again, focused on community development, affordable housing, and education policy. He is an associate professor in the Department of Sociology uh, and also, I believe, department chair at the Urban and Regional Planning Department at the University of Buffalo. Uh, lots of his research focusing around racism, white supremacy might help us understand what exactly is happening in the east side. How could a white race soldier just look at zip codes and know that there would be a high concentration of black people locked into this section where if I want to go and kill as many black people as possible, they'll only have this one grocery store so I'll be able to go and pick off as many as possible. His work may help us understand. Joining us live on the cows, our guest, Dr. Robert M. Silverman. Let's see if I get the line correct here. Dr. Silverman, are you with us? Let's see if this is his line. Yes, I am. Awesome. Good evening. Thank How are you? Uh, right poorly, but I'm thankful that we have you on the program with us this evening. Um, for our listeners, this might be their first time hearing from you. Uh, if you would like to tell us uh, a little bit briefly about who you are and the work that you do, sir. Right. Well, I am a professor in the Department of Urban and Regional Planning at the University of Buffalo. And um, your your introduction really kind of captured, you know, kind of the core of things I work on. I um, do research on housing and community development issues really around the country, but, you know, a lot of my work uh, obviously kind of looks at Buffalo as, as one city where there are a lot of concerns about uh, affordable housing, fair housing, um, access to um, neighborhoods and, and opportunities um, around the community. And, um, yeah, I've been kind of working, you know, in this area, you know, for, you know, several decades, and I've been living in Buffalo also since, you know, 2002, so I've been in the community for about 20 years, um, working with colleagues of mine at the university, uh, particularly uh, studying, you know, issues of race and inequality in the city of Buffalo, and also working on community projects, you know, on in, in the city and particularly on the east side of Buffalo. Spectacular. We will try to cover as much as we can the time that we have you. Uh, for folks who have sure. not seen you, you are a white man. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, right on. Uh, for this program, I use the term racism 
and the term white supremacy, I use those as synonyms. Uh, I use the same definition for both terms. The definition I use is as follows. A global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Do you think such a system exists? Do you think that definition is accurate? Well, I think that's a pretty good working definition when you, when you talk about uh, racism and white supremacy uh, in that it kind of really, you know, captures, you know, kind of the core of, of, you know, what people talk about in the context of, you know, how, how racism presents itself in society. So I think that's that's a, a pretty accurate starting point to start talking about issues. Of course, there's a lot of layers, you know, to any particular, you know, topic that you're going to talk about related to um, discrimination and racism, but kind of really understanding that it kind of has historic roots in systems of inequality, which is what you were referring to, and kind of white domination, you know, on a global scale is, is really kind of a good way to anchor the whole discussion. Anchor, I heard that, I heard that, har, 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 har. So funny, Dr. Silverman. Anyway, um, uh, he says he, he, accurate, great starting point. I'm just pointing this out for non-white listeners. Uh, words are very important. Uh, I did not use the term discrimination. Uh, and even we heard systems of inequality. And even this is how important words are, racism and white supremacy. Racism is white supremacy. That's why I said I use the same definition for both. They are synonyms, one and the same. No and is even needed. Uh, but just for listeners, I don't even use the word discrimination. Words like that, in my view, were greatly. I would not refer to what happened in May of this year on the east side of Buffalo as discrimination. Words are very important, and even systems. We have a global system of white supremacy racism that dominates all areas of people activity and the entire planet. All other systems are secondary to that. And that one is very important because what ends up happening is we end up with a lot of conflation oftentimes. Again, I just go back anchoring to May of this year. The fella didn't come there. Systems of inequality looking for, he came specifically looking to hunt black people. That's what I mean about system of white supremacy, everything else. And even some of this will come through in the work. Uh, do you have a definition of racism that you use in your work when you're teaching and what have you, Dr. Silverman? Well, well, I, I, I do, and, and a lot of it is very similar to what you were describing. Um, in terms of talking about racism, really in, in many ways synonymously with, with white supremacy, because, you know, the two, you know, are kind of tightly connected to one another, especially, you know, in the U.S., but, it, but it's something that um, didn't always just originate in the U.S., but it was brought here with the introduction of kind of colonizers from Europe, you know, who came to the, came to the United States and, and brought all of the different, um, you know, kind of 
expressions of, of racism that, that were connected to it. And so when I talk about racism, I kind of connect it to kind of global colonialism that began with kind of European um, conquest of the world. And, and so it really does kind of overlap with a lot of the ways that you're talking about racism and, and white supremacy. Could we could we hear the definition that you use? Well, well, when I when I talk about racism, um, I go back to you know some of the ways that it was described in the 1960s by people like Huey Newton, but I also talk about it in the context of you know some of the colonialism arguments where were, were topic or discussions of things like internal colonialism were brought up. Um, in the 1960s moving forward and kind of linking those to kind of, you know, worldwide systems of inequality that had been introduced um, in the 1400s and 1500s and onward as European exploration and, and kind of domination of the world began to really kind of become more magnified. And then the system of, of slavery that became a dominant part of the U.S. kind of foundation and economy in the 1700s really kind of helped to kind of set the stage for the continuation of racial inequality in the United States up to the present. Hmm. Okay. Um, and listeners, you all can let me know, feel free, um, if you <clears throat> felt like, you know, Dr. Silverman, if he did answer a question or what have you, but... I didn't really hear, I felt like I heard more of like a, a brief synopsis of history as opposed mm -hmm. to an actual definition. That's something else that I point out that actually walked me to my, my next question. That's something that I've uh, concluded. One of the ways that white people deliberately, willfully practice racism, uh, not answering questions directly. When non-white people ask, they will talk about other things or they will use 200 words to answer a question that could have been answered in maybe five words. Uh, that's something that's very important. Uh, if you can answer our question, if you don't agree or what have you, that's totally fine. You can give whatever explanation. That's awesome. That's why we wanted to talk to you, but making sure that the question does get answered. Is that something that you're agreeable to do, Dr. Silverman? No, no, no. Sure. Yes. Awesome. I will. Uh, maybe I might use many words more because I you know, I'm an academic and I, I write a lot, but yeah, I mean, there, you know, there's a shorter definition of racism that really gets to kind of a, a false sense of superiority over another race that, you know, is really kind of the core of, of racism that kind of builds up to, you know, a, a sense of entitlement in society that, that, that whites might have with reference to non-whites, whether the people are black or Hispanic or other people of color. And so I think we're talking about racism in the same way, even if I'm maybe trying to define it in, in a lot of detail and using a, a lot of different kind of nuances. But I don't think we're in disagreement about, you know, our understanding or at least our belief that racism is a centerpiece in, in all types of interactions that take place in society. We shall see. I'm just pointing out the difference for listeners. His definition centered around mm -hmm. entitlement, 
mind. We're talking about centerpieces around the mistreatment. Uh, and that, I think, is huge. Many times we talk to white people where they talk about racism and it drifts to uh, entitlement and privilege. Whereas I've said again, terrorism, going back to May, terrorism, fundamentally, this is about mistreatment of individuals that they say are not white. Uh, and that was important as well that you mentioned that, again that was why we wanted to talk to you because you have so much research on all of this cannot wait to talk about some of your different reports uh, but I do think it's also uh, important for just typical folks regular folks especially even in your report non-white people don't have the same access to education that's part of how racism works uh, I'd like to request if you could lower your vocabulary level so that make sure that people are not missing information just because they don't understand is that acceptable sir? Yes. Awesome. Uh, let's see. Uh, two quick questions. These are just general that I've been general. And then I have very specific questions about your faculty page. I found fascinating some of your statements. And then uh, just, yeah, it's it's fascinating. I think I have it linked. If I don't, I'll, I'll send it out on social media so people can check out Dr. Silverman's uh, faculty page. Question number one, uh, in your uh, research, uh, have you seen any evidence that a substantial number of individuals classified as white are going to voluntarily and permanently desist from the practice of white supremacy racism? Well, I, I, that isn't a direct area of my research studying kind of, you know, white racist particularly, although I think that indirectly from some of the, the research I have done, um, there is, con, you know, consistent resistance on the part of whites to either acknowledge, you know, the, the extent to which racism impacts society or, you know, even to kind of try to avoid discussions of it in terms of the types of research topics I talk about um, in my work. For instance, when we did research on you know, the gentrification process in the city of Buffalo, uh, public officials who were white and other, you know, whites who participated in those studies um, really sidestepped many of the issues when, when race and racism were being discussed directly. And so, you know, that resistance is there and it's part of the problem and even an expression of racism itself, you know, when, when people um, are unwilling to acknowledge that, you know, kind of a central reason that you see inequalities in terms of, of housing and, and access to resources and, and income and, and other kind of material things that people gain from society um, are present, that, you know, there's a very, you know, large component that has to do with the, the degree to which people, you know, face racism when they're trying to kind of just get access to basic resources in society. And so, you know, kind of the difficulty that academics have, myself, in terms of kind of getting those issues out in the open uh, when we're talking to people or collecting data or doing surveys or any other types of research activities um, is, is really in some ways, you know, evidence in and of itself that, you know, people's unwillingness to speak openly about race is, is part of, you know, kind of, the way that racism is really kind of interwoven into society's fabric itself because it becomes an obstacle to, you know, moving forward and making any kinds of changes. 
this is this is another one almost going consecutive where I didn't really hear an answer to the question. Uh, I totally get this mm-hmm. is not your direct area of research, but you are classified as a white man and you do study racism. You talk about racism, you write about it and what have you. So do you have if you don't have an opinion, you can say no as well. But the question again, do you see any evidence that a substantial number of individuals classified as white are going to voluntarily and permanently desist from the practice of white supremacy racism? Oh, well, well, the answer to that question would be, I see very little evidence of that, just in the fact that uh, when confronted with, with the topic, you know, many white people will simply avoid the discussion or deny it, and, and that itself is kind of an expression of racism because they're allowing racism to continue by not confronting it much obliged sir and that uh, continually remind non-white people that is such an important question to ask to consider to answer uh, because depending on the answer to that question based on evidence we go very different directions about solving this problem if white people are committed as my definition dedicated to white supremacy racism then we take very different steps about solving this problem than if that is not the case if there's a substantial number of white people who hey let's stop this right now but as you said very little evidence of that that is super important and should be at the beginning of conversations to make sure suggestions we make are in alignment with hey it doesn't seem like white people are going to stop this voluntarily uh let's see the other question been asking individuals classified as white see uh do you as a white person dr silverman white man specifically uh do you think it's logical for any non-white person to be suspicious of anyone classified as white, even yourself, as long as the system of white supremacy exists? Wait, can you say that again? I, I, do I think white people should be suspicious of any white people I'll, as long I'll, as racism exists? I'll, I'll give it to you one more time. I, I did, yeah. Sure. Here we go. Uh, do you, Dr. Silverman, do you think it's logical for any non-white person to be suspicious of anyone classified as white, even yourself, as long as the system of racism exists. Yeah, I think it is. I think that, you know, it, it, knowing that how pervasive racism is, um, a person who is not white should always, you know, kind of at least, you know, be somewhat suspicious or maybe, you know, approach, you know, you know, kind of white people with the anticipation that, you know, they might not be in the same mind frame about racism. Either they've been, you know, kind of delusional about its existence, resistant to acknowledging it, even to some some extent, you know, kind of brainwashed to some degree about, you know, the, de- the degree to which racism really has, you know, benefited whites over over blacks and, and other non-white people. And, um, and so, at least to understand that somewhere in somebody's kind of personal makeup who's white, 
you know that you know they will kind of have that that handicap in place where they they're unable to kind of get past racism entirely at the same time you know it would it would also be important to remember that you know there might be you know that might not be the case with every white person and so you know they should look for opportunities to both you know you know find you know white people who are more enlightened and and also to you know you know understand you know how to deal with white people who have a long way to go in terms of kind of understanding how racism really functions in society wow that's amazing i was taking notes during uh, dr silverman's response um Wow, that's amazing. I have questions just on your faculty page, so I'll just have to sit in amazement for one second. Okay. I just wrote down words for listeners. Delusional. Brainwashed. Handicapped. Unable to get past racism. Long way to go. Almost thought we were going uh, Nelson Mandela's autobiography, which is long walk to freedom. Almost, but not quite. Uh, but wow, that is... If we had more time, maybe I'll come back to that. But wowee, wowee, that is amazing. Uh, for your faculty page, I think I said I linked it. If I did not, if I'm lying, I will do so uh, for listeners. And I mean, really, it's 2022, right? So you all could just, you know, Dr. Robert M. Silverman. I'm sure you could find it at University of Buffalo. I'm sure you could track it down. But I went to your faculty page and several things struck me. One uh, says that you say that honesty and freshness of student perspectives serves as some of your most valuable input on your research. Student feedback is often uncensored and more provocative than comments received in other settings. So, wow, I do not hear that very often from our uh, guests, especially, you know, established, published uh, professors and what have you that are at big universities uh, who, you know, are looking for that sort of honest feedback about their work, particularly when they are talking about racism, white supremacy. Uh, did you want to add anything to that, doctor? Because that is on your page, yes? Yeah, it is. Um, yeah, I think uh, that was somewhere on the web page where they're, they're asking us questions about, you know, kind of, you know, you know, what we really kind of see is, you know, you know, enriching, you know, from the university. And to me, you know, I actually, you know, enjoy being in the classroom, you know, as much as I do other parts of my job where I'm doing research and kind of working on, you know, my own academic projects. And and we, I work with a lot of graduate students who are kind of interested in urban issues, who kind of are from the city of Buffalo or, you know, from downstate New York. Um, those are students of color as well as, you know, white students. And, uh, you know, they, they bring a lot of things to the table and, and they're, you know, going to challenge you, you know, when you talk about issues that they don't agree with or you, they might think you're missing, you know, their, their lived experience, you know, in, in the real world outside of kind of the walls of the ivory tower. And, um, you know, we have a lot of good discussions and I, I actually open up my mind to things that I might be missing just because, you know, I'm a 50-some-year-old older white guy who doesn't always get out there and see what's happening on a day-to-day basis like my students do who are kind of out in the community and circulating, you know, in different walks of life. And so, you know, I always, 
you know, get as much from teaching or maybe even more as my students do from kind of coming to classes and talking about, you know, the things that I, I give them to read and, and, and work on in, in the classroom. Do, uh, you said you, you have students who are white and non-white, some of them who are right there in the Buffalo area. Can you tell us uh, the demographics mm-hmm. of your students and then if you teach grad level or undergrad? Well, well, right now I mostly teach at the graduate level. Uh, the demographics of my students, um, I would say in my classrooms, because you know I'm teaching um, courses on housing and community development, uh, it might be about 60% white, 40% students of color, and, and that would probably break down to about of that group, about maybe a third African-American, another third Hispanic, and another third Asian or, or people of some other race. Uh, you know, and it depends from class to class, semester to semester. But that that's the mix kind of in the classroom that I'm in. That That's different than my department as a whole and the university at large. You know, the minority student um, population goes down, you know, if you start to get into other disciplines and, and even other parts of my school or my department uh, because of, you know, historic patterns of racism that have presented all types of barriers just to kind of gaining access to graduate school and gaining access to college in general. Um, but but the kind of subject matter and topics that I, I teach in the classroom um, kind of appeal to, you know, more students who are African Americans because they're interested in working on problems in the communities um, that, that either they come from or that they have family or friends in and the types of topics that we talk about in my classes kind of have a direct connection to some of the things that the students are working on or hope to work on in the future. A lot of them have to do with issues in the case, my case of things like you know housing, community development, um, neighborhood revitalization, things of that nature. I see, I see. Uh, and I guess I'll get these one at a time. So first one would be for our listeners, like what exactly do you do with regards to uh, urban and regional planning school of architecture in terms of your job beyond the teaching component, or at least what are you teaching people to do at the Department of Urban and Regional Planning? Well, one one of the classes I teach is a class called Housing and Community Development, and we usually start the semester uh, talking about, um, you know, the 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 impact that um, civil unrest and also that that race have had on communities and how how they end up kind of being both segregated and built and disinvested in or disinvested from. And then we use that as a starting point to then talk about all the kind of nuts and bolts issues related to, you know, planning for the development of affordable housing, um, you know, a number of the different, you know, housing programs that are designed to provide people with opportunities to, you know, live in a variety of different types of communities, the way things like gentrification have impacted um, communities that have historically been disinvested from and then have, you know, suddenly faced a new type of, of, um, of displacement because of 
of you know an influx of capital that doesn't necessarily benefit residents of those communities, uh, and then we kind of used all those different discussions to then kind of go back and and talk and talk about how you know policies can be changed in the future in order to you know address some of those those historic problems that the communities have faced because of race and discrimination that's taken place in housing and employment in public education systems and, and and all the other things that are related to that and and so that that's kind of one type of thing that I focus on in my my coursework and then I also teach a class that that really looks at um, community organizing and public participation, and and it really kind of has a focus similar to the housing course that that really looks at, at those those areas as as both opportunities for challenging you know racist systems in society, but also to open up systems of of public engagement so that people who are impacted by public policies you know have more voice in shaping them and also monitoring them um, as they unfold. Hmm. Okay. Okay. And when you write reports, like some of the ones we'll talk about, uh, the affordable housing in U.S. shrinking cities and uh, William Worthy's concept of institutional rape, when you produce these sort of publications, who is your intended audience? Is this for folks at the university, your students or what have you? Is this for lay folks, everybody? Who's your intended audience? Well, well, really, it depends on some of each of those reports and, and kind of where it kind of grew out of. Um, you know, some of my work is intended more for kind of an academic audience, but I do a lot of work through research centers at the university, like the Center for Urban Studies, where uh, it really kind of starts with um, kind of community-based research, working either with or for um, local community groups, to then uh, kind of do research that that um, people in the community can actually have access to, so that they can you know influence public policy. Uh, you know, like for instance, one of the reports out of the Center for Urban Studies that really is was a follow-up to a 1990 um, State of Black Buffalo report that was done by a colleague of mine, Professor Hedner Taylor. Um, I did some work on that project as well where we kind of revisited that study and really just kind of learned that, you know, a lot of the the disinvestment that had been taking place in the city 20 or 30 years ago had continued to kind of have the same effect on, on neighborhoods around the city and, and you know, unequal investment taking place, things like that. And uh, that report was used, you know, for a, you know, kind of a public dissemination process where we, you know, held public meetings and invited members of community groups, um, church groups, uh, you know, a number of kind of people from the grassroots to kind of have access to those findings to really kind of help them, you know, kind of strengthen, you know, their efforts to pursue a number of, you know, kind of reinvestment strategies at the neighborhood level, mostly on the east side of Buffalo, because that was the focus of that particular report. But even with the um, the paper, the William Worthy um, institu- uh, um, Institutional Rape 
paper that we you were talking about, that that was a paper where we were looking at medical campus expansion um, in the city of Buffalo, and and understanding that you know the the expansion of the Buffalo Niagara Medical Campus was in many ways disconnected from the adjacent community, which is called the Fruit Belt in Buffalo, and that particular community has historically, you know, been uh, a majority African-American neighborhood, and really, you know, a majority or more than 60% of the residents are African-American, either homeowners or renters, um, long-term residents of the community, and they really had been kind of cut out of the university hospital expansion project that had been taking place. And, you know, the paper was kind of written to kind of document that experience, and then it was circulated, you know, through a number of, of local community advocacy organizations and community groups in the city of Buffalo to just really, you know, kind of elevate people's understanding of, of that type of, of um, you know, way that the community was left out of the discussion to try to, you know, create more access points for residents to, you know, try to get, you know, some of the benefits of that investment in the community in, in the neighborhood itself and also to protect the neighborhood from gentrification. Context of white supremacy, Dr. Robert M. Silverman. Uh, since neighborhoods, that's such an important part of your work and residential space, where, what part of Buffalo do you live in, if you live in Buffalo proper at all? No, I actually do not live in Buffalo proper at all. Um, I live in a, a suburb of the city, and um, that came about um, in a roundabout way, basically, when I moved here, um, my in-laws and, and my um, family um, lived outside of the city, and I just located closer to where they lived for, you know, proximity purposes to be close to the family. Okay, okay. Uh, last one from the faculty page. There was so much information there. Uh, again, you all can check it out yourself. Uh, University of Buffalo, Robert M. Silverman. Uh, they have an image so people can see what you look like if they have not already. Mm -hmm. uh, and it looks like you, I guess, are doing a presentation of some sort. And there's a screen behind you, and it has planning for the health and social inclusion of LGBT older adults. Uh, I didn't know, did you mm -hmm. pick that photo specifically, or did, did whoever's in charge of the webpage go through and say, hey, this is a great pick, we'll take this one? Well, that that actually was a dissertation defense from a student who's, um, dissertation committee I was on, and uh, I just happened to be in that doing the introductions for that presentation when they were snapping photos, and the person who put the website together probably pulled them out of the, um, I guess, the repository they have in my, my school. So I'm very happy to be on that committee, and the student who did that work, you know, had a really good dissertation that people could probably find on the Internet. And uh, that was our first doctoral student, actually, who graduated from our Ph.D. program um, now probably about seven years ago. Oh, wow. That's an old one. Okay. Okay. Good to get, good to get clarification. I know sometimes the uh, folks who are in the photograph are not necessarily responsible for the image being posted and how it's used and all of that good stuff. Um Getting specific uh, to your work and what have you, um, many of the scholars and researchers that we've spoken with 
uh, with their research about Buffalo. They've included history, as you did uh, in the reports, at least the ones that I read, giving a brief kind of synopsis of some of the history of Buffalo and how things got to the point where we are right now. Uh, that's something that I think is important as well. Uh, I wanted to pick out uh, two names that I think are super important for Buffalo history. Uh, the first one, uh, Joseph G. Christopher. Do you know the significance, Joseph G. Christopher? I do not, but I'd like to know. Yikes, that's crazy. Now that will pause another question I'll have to ask too. Joseph G. Christopher, uh, and you said you've been in Buffalo how many years? 20 years? 2002? 20 years. Okay. Uh, In 1980, there were, continued uh, into 1981, but starting in September of 1980, uh, there were a series of murders of black males uh, in Buffalo uh, that started at an East Side Tops grocery store in Buffalo, where a 14-year-old black male, Glenn Dunn, uh, was shot and killed. Uh, three more black males were killed, uh, two of them in Buffalo and one in Niagara Falls. Uh, several black males were stabbed to death in Manhattan. Uh, the killer came back to Buffalo and killed several more black males. In fact, he killed two black males and carved their heart out uh, and celebrated the massacre. Anyway, this went on as for about seven months. Joseph G. Christopher is the white killer's name, uh, and uh, he was only caught after bragging, uh, basically, about these killings while he was in the army. Uh, in Fort Benning. I pointed this out consistently because if we're serious and talking about, dang, why did this happen? The massacre in May of this year. The correct way of reporting this would be this is the second time or you can give it lots of ways that a white racist killer targeted an east side Buffalo grocery store, Topps grocery store, to kill as many black people as possible again. I think that would make people think very differently about all of this. And plus, this is not ancient history, something that happened in 1980 and no. it was a huge event. This was even to put this in context for how huge this became. This was a national <clears throat> event. This was on Nightline. President Carter was in the White House at the time, talked about this, uh, these killings from the White House uh, during the 1980 presidential election. Uh, George H.W. Bush came to Buffalo and talked about these killings. There was a federal task force about these killings. Uh, I could go, Jesse Jackson came to Buffalo. They had a march in October of 1980 where 5,000 people uh, rallied about these killings. They had a second march uh, in January of 1981 because no one had been caught at this point where they came back to march again. Uh, So much around this case. I mean, this is one easily one, I think one of the most important events uh, in terms of Buffalo history over the last bit. In fact, the audio that we started with today, it went back and forth between mm-hmm. snippets from that, those killings in 1980 and 81 to the killings in May. And it ended with a snippet from Catherine Pellinero's book, Absolute Madness, where someone wrote to Mayor Jimmy Griffin, Jimmy Sixpack. They wrote to him complaining, why are we wasting all this time and money investigating these killings i hope he kills 20 more of them this is a disgrace nigger calling oh that's best phrases i've ever but you've never heard of any of this the 22 caliber killings i have not and and it's you know i did hear kind of the lead into the show but not with the reference to the joseph christopher killings um 
you know that back and it's it's interesting because you know given you know what happened just last may in buffalo you know aside from from your station you know on kind of the local kind of network tv stations and on all the other covers i heard i didn't even hear any reference to it as well and then here's like you were pointing out a really good example of kind of you know another racist you know kind of targeted killing taking place in Buffalo that that in in some ways it, it maybe even the the killer in Buffalo this year might not have known about that killing either but that type of a you know kind of a you know a, an acknowledgement and a, and a memorializing of of what happened in 1980 could have really kind of helped to kind of prevent you know what happened now if people knew more about the history and so you know, not as an excuse, but you know, in 1980, I was I was 13 years old and living on the other side of the country, and so at the time, it might have been something I missed. But certainly, by the time I got to Buffalo, um, it was something that wasn't part of the local kind of discussion of history on a regular basis, and, and it would have potentially helped people to understand and contextualize things today better, as well as even perhaps to prevented what happened by kind of making people more understand understanding and knowledgeable about you know the deeper history of things that have happened in the city so i'm glad that i do know about it now and that name will you know remain in my mind and and that story and i'll kind of research it and try to learn more about it moving forward but i certainly didn't know about it until today Once again, you know, I'm not in the habit of wasting time. I said at the beginning, it's not even close. We are the syllabus on the Buffalo Massacre of this year from the Mm -hmm. other side of the continent. Seattle, Washington. Not even close. Everybody gets an F if you've not mentioned Joseph G. Christopher. And they've had two months and really no excuse. That's why I said this is with regards to the mainstream journal Buffalo News, the local papers right there where you live New York Times, all of the New York State journalists, this was a well covered event there is no excuse for there not being WBFO they've done all these podcasts and had Henry Louis Taylor as a guest on and Keisha Douglas she was one of the victims they could have mentioned, they could have done a whole program Wow, this happened before. I can't believe it. And he tops grocery store and everything. Nothing. All I can conclude, this is willful white supremacy racism. And I even, for our listeners, now you all have to stop and pause. Just, I will have to stop and pause and think about this. Now we've talked to, I've lost count. Let me go back up here and see. So Anna Blatto, uh, Matt Greider wrote the book, Bump Him Away. Sean Lay, Neil Krause. Now, our guest today, Dr. Silverman, these folks teach at the University of Buffalo and write about racism and the history of racism in Buffalo to some degree. How is it that these folks are not informed about Joseph G. Christopher and even what he said that this is not talked about? He's been there for 20 years. That is a it is a disgrace. But that right there, white supremacy, racism what is the value of black not one black person died but I mean lots of black people heart 
taken, not just killed, mutilated and have your heart carved out. Jesse Jackson comes to town. The president talks about this all. There was a House subcommittee on violence against non-white people in 1981. Buffalo was one of the cities in the investigation because of these killings. And nobody remembers this. That right there, white supremacy racism. Name number two, and then we can get to the reports. Do you know Cynthia Wiggins? That name, I I know. I'm trying to place it. But I do know the name. That is the person who died, I believe, at the Galleria Mall with the bus accident. A plus. Am I right? One out of two. One out of two. Bravo. Bravo. I did not know Cynthia Wiggins uh, or the significance of her. He got hit by a dump truck at the Galleria Mall in 1995. Right, because she was... She didn't have access to public transit at the mall. She had to cross the street. That's exactly. a little more closer to my my time, I guess. It was in the 90s when I was becoming more aware of the world around me. But I do know about that case. That was very widely publicized in Buffalo, and people still talk about that today here. Mm. Especially, you know, I'm in a planning department, and when they talk about you know transportation equity, that actually is you know kind of an example people give. Well, I'm glad of that. But now, even that is something to contrast now. 1981, yes, that's before, but that is not ancient history. And again, this is a well-documented case. And I mean, not that we need to do a body count, but I mean, there were a lot more deaths uh, in that case to have nothing. Now, there are books. They have whole books written about it. uh, The Buffalo News, as I said, they could have done a whole retrospective. They have dozens of reports and all different outlets at any rate uh now we can get to your work just keeping that in mind joseph christopher so important that's such a pivot i feel like nobody should be allowed like the way that i view that that event is so important joseph g christopher the 22 caliber killings that would be the equivalent of have you being a professor at the university of mississippi old miss and me saying hey do you know who James Meredith is? You're like, who? Who's James Meredith? Who is that? Like, how are you allowed to teach at Ole Miss and you don't know who James is? That's about the equivalent. Like, are you serious? You teach at the University of Buffalo about racism and you don't know who Joseph Christopher is? Except nobody knows who Joseph Christopher is. Like, except the two people that we talked to who wrote books about him. Like, nope. Even people who lived in New York lived through these events. No recollection of it at all. Amazing. Uh, moving to your report, sir. William Worthy's concept of institutional rape revisited. Anchor, this was where I got my joke at. Har, har, har. Anchor institutions and residential displacement in Buffalo, New York. This is from 2014. Uh, I will give folks a quick little uh, segment and then allow you to respond or set this one up. So I'm skipping down. This is from the uh, subsection Anchor Institutions and Residential displacement the United States has a long history of displacing poor and disadvantaged people in the name of progress although this pattern of community dislocation has expressed itself in a number of contexts it has become pronounced in declining core cities at the turn of the century in this article we trace the roots 
of the quandary faced by poor and minority residents when large anchor institutions like nonprofit hospitals and universities attempt to expand their campuses in inner city neighborhoods. We link the genesis of this predicament to the legacy of urban renewal and the subsequent devaluation and non-profitization of federal urban policies. We then discuss how grassroots organizations have responded to nonprofit anchor-based development strategies with renewed calls for community control in the urban revitalization process. Oh, oh, skip down. I read the wrong footnote. Sorry about that. Skip down two more pages. So there we go read the wrong note. There we go. During the 1960s and early 1970s, a short-lived collective response to residential displacement emerged in U.S. cities. Leaders and rank-and-file members of the African-American community voiced concern about the federal government's urban renewal program. Ubiquitously, urban renewal became synonymous with Negro removal in public discourse. Critiques of urban revitalization efforts were not isolated to federal programs. During the same period, concerns were raised about the expansion of local place-based institutions like colleges, hospitals, churches, and public agencies. Worthy argued that efforts to expand these institutions had detrimental impacts on inner-city neighborhoods. He described how the expansion of colleges, hospitals, and other large anchor institutions resulted in the disruption of communities and residential displacement. He labeled conflicts associated with institutionality, institutionally driven neighborhood revitalization efforts, institutional rape, because of the victimization that these activities entailed for inner city residents. And I'll pause there. Uh, can you, I guess, just tell us how this, and guess if you want to give us any additional detail, that's great, but now how does this apply specifically to what you were looking at in Buffalo? Oh, hello, hello? Can you hear me, Dr. Kelly? Or, excuse me, Dr. Silverman, can you hear me? Uh, Dr. Silverman, hello, can you hear me? I see you on the line, but we're not hearing you. Are you there? Did you hit your mute button, maybe? I'm checking to make sure. Let's see. I'll unmute and mute again just to see if that did anything. All right, so unmuted. Dr. Silverman, can you? Oh, okay, see you on the here. Let's try it. Let's see this way. Let's power see. outage where I'm at and all oh. my phone went out oh okay Crazy. okay I can hear you now we got you thank you for adjusting on the fly much obliged for being flexible um, I'm not sure if you uh, heard my I just read a little bit from the William Worthy concept of institutional rape where you describe where he kind of founded uh, this concept uh, and how non-white people, I think you use the term mm -hmm. minorities, uh, they don't benefit when these so-called anchor institutions uh, come in and they're going to expand or revitalize the neighborhood and it ends up the non-white people end up not benefiting from any of this, not getting the jobs or any of the goodies from the resources. Uh, how does this mm -hmm. apply to what you looked at 
in Buffalo with regards to Macaulay Gardens? Right. Well, well, Macaulay Gardens um, is a you know subsidized housing development right in the city of Buffalo, literally across the street from the Buffalo Niagara Medical Campus, where a lot of investment had taken place to build a new vascular institute, a new children's hospital, to build a new um, campus for the University of Buffalo Medical School. And so all of the jobs, all the opportunities, you know, that that development would bring would hopefully benefit the surrounding community. But um, rather than kind of working in partnership with residents, you know, in Macaulay Gardens who might look for opportunities to get training in healthcare fields, to get jobs in, in some of those those new hospitals and educational centers that were developed, uh, the Buffalo um, Niagara Medical Campus instead tried to negotiate to buy Macaulay Gardens so it could be um, leveled, so it could be bulldozed, and to build more parking for the medical institute. And um, the residents in Macaulay Gardens um, were about 75% African-American um, at the time. Um, and, and so there was a, really a lot of community uproar about this proposal to, to buy the property and, and really displace you know, all of these residents. And the other thing about Macaulay Gardens is that it was one of the you know, kind of more successful um, subsidized housing properties in the city in terms of both its kind of maintenance, its condition, its its location in terms of being kind of centrally located near, you know, a lot of resources, near a transportation hub, you know, all kinds of things like that. And so community groups really opposed, you know, the the university's effort to purchase Macaulay Gardens for those purposes. And, it, well, to make a long story short, in the end, that that local opposition to the purchase of the property um, by the Buffalo Niagara Medical Campus um, resulted in McCarley Gardens not being taken over by the university and also in, in the property actually getting redeveloped and reinvested in by, by, by its owners so it would re- maintain, be maintained as an affordable housing development right next to the Buffalo Niagara Medical Campus. And there were, you know, some commitments at least begun to be made by the university and by the healthcare um, network that was located there to create more training programs, more job opportunities, more connections with the surrounding community. Um, a lot of that is still kind of being a fought for, but just but that whole pattern of of kind of bulldozing and developing without consideration for surrounding communities is really kind of exemplified in what happened, you know, with the McCarley Gardens effort to kind of purchase that property by the medical campus. And it was really just a good example of how these types of development processes unfold in in a lot of cities around the country. Context of white supremacy uh and i saw i think right. they just got a big grant uh from governor hochul uh to invest like tens of millions of dollars uh to invest within the last few years or so to reinvest and improve things uh institutional rape that was going back to the concept that was used in the report when i scroll down because you go through like a number of the different like tactics 
that were used mm-hmm. uh, against these, as you said, predominantly black residents uh, in Macaulay Gardens. Uh, let me see. You, this is, well, I guess page 175 of the report. Uh, you write, a perennial complaint among residents involved transparency in the planning process. Macaulay Gardens mm-hmm. residents made repeated requests for a copy of the memorandum between the University of Buffalo and St. John Baptist Church outlining the conditions for the sale of the property. Despite these requests, the memorandum was never publicly released. The unwillingness of the University of Buffalo and St. John Baptist Church to share the memorandum fed broader trepidations about transparency and inclusion in the planning process. This sentiment is illustrated in the following excerpt from an article that appeared in the local newspaper Art Voice after a December 2012 community meeting. Lorraine Chambly, who lives in Macaulay Gardens, took the panel to task for not effectively reaching out to residents there. She pointed to the meeting notice, which reads in part, UB and St. John Baptist Church have entered into a contract to prepare the Macaulay Gardens property for future use by UB as part of its downtown campus development. Why was it that she was the only of three residents at the meeting? And why weren't meeting notices distributed to all residents if the meeting was about them? She heard about the meeting through the grapevine, as did Art Voice. Now, I cracked up laughing when I read that. Like, are you serious? Like, this is 2012, ladies and gentlemen. Like, this is not Ray Charles. This is not, this is not even like 1980s, 22 caliber. Like, 2012, Twitter existed. Facebook existed. People had phones. Like, what do you mean you heard about it through the grapevine in 2012? Like, that... The concept was institutional rape. And I said, that's such a great example because you don't even get consent. You don't even come in and talk to me. You don't even let us know about the meeting. Your response, sir. Right. I mean, that that's you. Everything you said is, is really kind of right on the spot because that, that was what was happening, you know, with the, the whole process of, you know, the plan to purchase Macarley Gardens is it was all done behind behind closed doors, you know, with secret negotiations between, you know, the owner of the property, which in, in, at the time was St. John Baptist Church, and um, representatives from the Niagara Buffalo Niagara Medical Campus and the University of Buffalo. It was part of, you know, kind of their way to re-envision the community um, without even engaging the community. And, you know, people, you know, it was it was all done, you know, quietly. Um, and, and the idea, I guess, was to present the, the plan to the community after the fact. But people started to kind of get get wind of it as as it was happening, maybe through people who were kind of working at the mid-level you know, at the university or somewhere where they knew people in the community and kind of tipped them off to what was going on. And then people started to ask questions. But, you know, the memorandum of understanding was already drawn up. Um, the the pastor at St. John's Baptist Church was kind of brought on board because the funds that the church was going to 
received for the property. We're going to allow them to pursue other development pro- projects, you know, in the surrounding community that would help them to, you know, bring in new residents to kind of fill the pews in the church. And so there were a lot of conflicts of interest that took place all along the way, but the community was really left out of the process. And I think that the, at the grassroots, the the real kind of shock that took place in the community that this was happening really, you know, kind of led to it becoming more more widely known. And that transparency, you know, led to a different outcome than people who initially tried to plan the project um, were were trying to pursue. And it was a better outcome for the community when you look at, at what where, where things are today. But it could have been so much more if there was a more open discussion before that whole process began as well. You, uh, a little bit further down, wrote uh, a newspaper article editorialized this development. Uh, this was after some of the folks were saying that they felt like this was institutional rape. Basically, they were coming in with no regard for those who lived there. A newspaper article editorialized this development as one created as one that created the appearance of taking meaningful action while avoiding taking the truly meaningful action of approving a construction moratorium, which was the real issue of the day they tabled the vote on the moratorium but I thought that was so important because I think in the system of white supremacy racism frequently white people will give the appearance that they are doing things to work against racism when that is not the case at all that happens so many times and we end up being for we being non-white people uh, the caller uh, I guess you're on the Skype line did you have a question for Dr. Robert M. Silverman, uh, caller on the Skype line. Do you have a question for Dr. Silverman? You should be. Whoops. Oh, I did get it correct. Ah, uh, caller on the Skype line. Do you have a question, sir? Uh, yes. Greetings uh, to the to the guest. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, my first question is: If uh, non-white people ask for housing as a part of reparations, uh, what do you believe would be the response from people classified as white? I think we, we, we hear that response even when when when, when non white people ask for any type of housing assistance today short of connecting it to reparations and, and that is always some form of a response that you know that that people aren't deserving of that type of assistance or that they're not they don't take personal responsibility or that you know, they're the cause or the reason for their need rather than, you know, some type of some type of harm or, or discrimination or racism that they've faced that's put them in the position to kind of, you know, need additional assistance because they're they're unable to compete equally in society or, or they're they're kind of set behind in terms of the opportunities that are presented to them. So I think the response would be similar to responses for lesser, you know, kind of claims to rights that, that we see in society today, whether it's just a right to affordable housing or a right to, you know, equal education or, or any other type of right that, that, you know, results in some type of a blowback or knee-jerk reaction from people who want to deny those types of, those types of access and privilege to people who aren't white. 
So the answer would probably be just as negative and even more negative. Okay, thank you. Um, I guess I have two questions and possibly a, a follow-up one, but feel free to um, uh, cut me short if, if you need to. Uh, my, my second question, which is, uh, how should non-white people respond to that? Uh, so how should non-white people respond to the, uh, when they're denied adequate and correct housing? Do you have a suggestion for how non-white people should respond? Well, well, I think I think it should be kind of the response sh should be to really kind of confront the issue of racism that's there, and also maybe to highlight all of the the kind of you know benefits that, that white people garner from that unequal system um, in their own circumstances, you know, and people kind of cite these things all the time in terms of the mortgage, you know, kind of deductions that people get who predominantly are white um, for homes that they own, um, access to lower interest loans, uh, you know, the opportunities to, you know, attend a much broader range of public schools that might offer better entry points to higher education, um, all, all the kind of basic advantages that white people have in society as a result of, of their privilege. Um, are things that, that they don't, you know, have to ask for. They're simply given to them. And so for, for somebody who's been denied that access to those same types of resources to then simply ask for their fair share of, of things that, that other people just take for granted um, who are white um, would be, you know, one way to kind of point out that, you know, when, when somebody is just asking to be an equal participant in society, um, it's important to acknowledge that, that that inequality is there and it's all rooted in, in a system of racial inequality. Because that's really the foundation of, of the whole movement for reparations is that, you know, it, it's become a, a generational form of inequality that has its roots in a, a system of racism. So it's important, I think, to, you know, make make sure that, that white people, you know, aren't able to kind of just sidestep that whole issue. Um, okay. I'm not sure if, you, if, if that was really a suggestion. Um, if, if I understand you correctly, are you suggesting that uh, non-white people continue to ask, or I don't, I don't, I didn't really understand that suggestion. Well, well, I, I can you say that one more time? I just have a bad connection. I I didn't really understand uh, your response. I'm not sure it was really a suggestion. So, a suggestion to how to respond to white people denying reparations? No, I said to a white to people classified as white denying correct and adequate housing. So, right. So, so you want to know how to suggest that they don't do that? My question is: yes. Do you have a suggestion for how people classified as not white should mm -hmm. respond 
when people classified as white deny adequate and correct housing? Well, yeah, I think that part of the part of this, what people who are non-white need to do is is really kind of you know keep the issue on the table that that whites have benefited you know from that that system of inequality, and they've they've received you know a number of different advantages in terms of access to housing, education, resources that have, have really created those gaps that we see in terms of opportunities in society. And so, you know, the denial of, of access to housing, you know, as a form of reparation is really kind of an acknowledgement and really an affirmation of the continuation of that kind of inequality. And so part of the, part of, I guess what I'm suggesting is that non-whites need to kind of, you know, kind of not allow people to sidestep that issue who are white. Um, the other issue, side of that issue is to, um, you know, make sure that, that you know, that, that remains, you know, kind of a, not to really kind of abandon the issue, but to really push even harder for reparations just to continue to make the case and, and hope that, you know, that, that it becomes more difficult to deny, deny over time is, the recognition of inequality becomes, you know, more visible, you know, to other people who are kind of part of that discussion. But it's a difficult thing to do because, you know, the denial in the white community and the, the way that the groups try to kind of blame victims for, you know, the, the things that they're not able to gain access to and, and kind of to create an individualized bootstrap argument for personal responsibility that really isn't appropriate when you're looking at things like racism, really kind of creating the framework for all those inequalities in the first place is something that that really kind of helps to perpetuate, you know, the, the ability for whites to deny things like reparations in the first place. Okay, interesting. Thank, thank you for your sponsoring. I, 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 I hope I can, I'm answering the question in some way that that you're at least kind of, I'm getting at your answer, but it's a tough question to kind of get at because it gets back to that whole issue of, of you know, kind of systematic racism in society. Okay. Um, I, have one, I have one more question and a possible follow-up. Um, okay. So I hope this hasn't already been asked, but... Who is more informed about the system of white supremacy, non-white people or white people? I think in general, it would be non-white people because they experience it on a daily basis in ways that really, you, if you don't acknowledge it, you're still being harmed by it. Um, white people have many fewer incentives to kind of really face racism because they're benefiting from it, and, and, and until until they recognize, you know, the harm that it's doing to to non-whites, um, it becomes, you know, a much more of a burden on the people who are the, the targets and the victims of racism. Okay, um, so that that was interesting for my follow-up. Uh, I've noticed that oftentimes people classified as white, such as yourself, will suggest that non-white people are more informed about the system, 
what I've observed is when non-white people uh, provide suggestions on how to uh, eliminate the system of white supremacy, they are often, you know, white people, people classified as white, oftentimes don't want to do it, will ignore them, will suggest that it can't be done, etc. So I guess my follow-up question to that is why, why is it that if you, if it, you're suggesting that non-white people are more informed about the system, why is it that white people do not listen to those suggestions? Well, I, I think, you know, kind of at a deep subconscious level, I think white people understand that they are kind of, you know, in many ways illegitimately benefiting from racism. But at the same time, they, they understand that they'll they'll be giving up, you know, some privilege if if they actually, you know, kind of openly, you know, kind of, you know, confront that system. And so, you know, that that is enough for some people to simply kind of avoid the discussion because they they feel they have more to lose than gain at a real raw kind of basic level. And so that's part of the problem. Um the other thing is that when when you know, kind of white people do acknowledge that race and racism exists. A lot of times they're in kind of a, a very small minority of whites. And so then they're in a position where they really, although they, you know, they oppose racism, they have very few allies among other white people to actually dismantle the system. So there is, is oppressed by the system is, is non-whites just in that respect, not in terms of actually not benefiting from racism, but in terms of not being able to dismantle it. So it's, it's really the, you know, the, the people who are, are kind of dug in and unwilling to change the system who are white, who become the biggest obstacle. And, and the only way really to address that system is to kind of amass a, a larger majority to bring about change. Much obliged, our caller on the Skype line. Before we get to our caller at 2262, uh, Dr. Silverman, you are informed about racism, white supremacy, what it is, how it works, but you have not experienced white supremacy racism as a victim. True? I would say that's a, a fair statement, not in the same way that, that somebody who's not white would. So, yes, true. Wow. We've had lots of use of the word fair today and lots of use of the word benefit. Uh, just for non-white listeners, that's something that I point out on a regular basis. I'm talking about a mm -hmm. power dynamic, not privilege. Uh, that's just something that I make a distinction about on a regular basis. But our caller at 2262, did you have a question for Dr. Robert M. Silverman? Matt, you heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yes. Good afternoon. Uh, thank you guys for taking my call. And uh, greetings to Dr. Silverman. Uh, thank you for spending a little of your time with us today. Um, my first question will be, you used, earlier in the conversation, you used the phrase affordable and fair housing. 
Um, when you say affordable and fair housing, is it fair to who because of what? Well, I think using that phrase, I'm talking about two separate things. Um, obviously, there's the issue of affordable housing. And so affordable who, um, you know, there are a lot of different ways that people talk about what is affordable. But I think, you know, when you're talking about affordable housing, the idea is that, you know, there should be housing available in every community that, you know, is at a price level that anybody making, you know, kind of a a living wage should be able to afford. Um, And if they're not earning that wage, there should be some um, type of subsidy in place, you know, by government, like a voucher to make make the difference between what housing costs and what people can pay um, reasonable so that people can actually, you know, kind of occupy that housing and still meet all their other needs. So that's the affordable housing piece. Um, fair housing really, you know, is gets more at issues related to how how racism has actually blocked people from gaining access to housing even when they can afford it. And so, you know, part of the research and work I've done in the past has looked at, you know, things like the Fair Housing Act, which deals directly with kind of, in many cases, overt racism and discrimination that people face when they're trying to purchase or rent housing and and how that can be either overcome, you know, through legal remedies or through other types of penalties that discriminators and perpetrators of racism um, might 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 bring to the housing system. And so the affordable side is really kind of a, a dollars and cents issue. And, you know, the fair side has to do with eliminating racism and discrimination in housing markets when, when, when the, the issue of cost, you know, is already addressed. Okay. So the affordable part would include people classified as white, while the uh, fair, quote-unquote fair, would be specifically targeting people who are classified as non-white. Yes. Okay. My next question, uh, your class, when you, you were speaking about your class sizes and um, the type of demographics that make it up, you said a third of the classes consist of people of some other race. Uh, those people, in your opinion, as a white person, what would you classify them as? The, the people of another race? Yes, you said some other race. Yeah, well, in in the case of of my classes, you know, the, you know, we have probably about a third of our non-white students are African American, a third are Latino or Latinx, and then another third are you know students of Asian descent of some group, roughly. And it depends from class to class, but but you know about about. 35 or 45 percent of the students in my classes are students of color, and and then it would probably break down somewhere along that that breakdown that I just described, and it, it varies from course to course, semester to semester, year to year. Okay. Um, next question is the the people that you just spoke about in your class, the non-white people, 
specifically to black people, when you discuss uh, uh, racism in your class, your students are, do they suspect you could also be a racist? Well, I think, I think it's possible that, that similar to the discussion that we're having before on the show, um, you know, when people, you know, come to a, a situation where there's a white person and a black person, um, black person might, you know, at least be cautious about the fact that that white person could be racist. And so they might think that about me as well, especially when you first encounter somebody. And it takes a while to kind of, you know, have experiences with a person to get a better sense of what that person is all about and, you know, the degree to which your initial impressions are true or false or, you know, some mix of all of those things. So I, would, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, somebody just meeting me for the first time would have suspicions, just like you would with anyone else that you don't know. Do you encourage them to have a suspicion that you can also be a racist? I would, I would think that it, it would always be a good idea to have a healthy suspicion like that about anybody that you know, and even if you've known them for a long time, to kind of always try to, you know, highlight times when they might be kind of crossing the line or, or maybe even, you know, acting in ways that, that you don't, that you feel are racist or think could be, you know, they could do better at. So I would, I would think that if somebody had that feeling or had that impression, you know, I would be very willing to, you know, I would have no problem with them, you know, you know, telling me that so that we could talk about it or so that they could, you know, at least make me understand when they felt I did that, did things that weren't, that weren't appropriate. Um, my last question will be, um, from your studies, um, uh, what, what is the goal of your studies? Are you attempting to end the system of racism, white supremacy, or improve its anonymity somehow? Well, well, I think more on the in the direction of ending it or making it weaker, but certainly not making it more anonymous, so that it's not as visible. But really, just kind of enlightening or highlighting, you know, you know where it, where it is present, and then trying to figure out ways to lessen the impact of racism in society. That would be kind of a the ultimate goal of anything that I work on. Thank you for answering my question, and thank sure. you guys for taking my call. Much obliged. Uh, let's see. Our caller, uh, non-Clemson grad, non-Clemson grad. If you had a question for Dr. Silverman, you should be with us. All right. Good evening, everyone. I hope everyone's having a wonderful day. Um, hello, Senator Professor. I do have a couple of questions for you. Um, I'll start with my first question. Um, as an urban planning professor, what do you find your students are most confused about when white supremacy rate uh, about white supremacy racism in the profession? They're, they're, what are they most confused about when when who talks about racism in the profession? I'm sorry. 
What do you find your students are most confused about when it comes to supremacy racism in the profession of urban planning? Well, I think the thing that my students might be most frustrated about is the really kind of lack of discussion about white supremacy in the profession. It comes up quite a bit, actually, you know, with, with students that I've been, you know, kind of engaging with in the last couple of years, um, you know, especially since, you know, George Floyd's murder and, you know, the protests that took place a couple of years ago. Uh, I think students are are looking for kind of solutions and answers to a number of issues that, that revolve around racism and how they impact urban communities. And the frustration that a lot of students have is that they feel that the majority of the professors that they encounter at the university simply are ill-equipped to even initiate discussions about it, let alone um, kind of pursue, you know, you know, the development of, of policies or programs or projects that, that take on issues about race and racism directly. And so there's a frustration, especially in the planning profession, that um, the profession really is, you know, not, you know, up to the up to the task in terms of addressing racism. You know, at the same time, I think that the students are are finding ways to search for those types of answers and solutions, you know, outside of the university itself. And, and that's why when we had a discussion about you know, how, how, you know, I really get a lot out of what students bring to the classroom. Um, you know, they come with ideas and they come with, you know, you know, possible solutions and possible remedies to racism that they're not getting it in the classroom kind of directly from the teaching that they're or the, the coursework and the materials that they're being exposed to. So there's more demand for the the discipline to change that, that really coming from students and in that case that's kind of a grassroots demand and um, you know when, when you hear those kinds of concerns coming from students um, it's really kind of incumbent on you to kind of step up to the plate and kind of support them and, and try to work towards those same kinds of goals and it really gives you a lot of energy to do that because you know, then you're starting to get that critical mass together to kind of push for change. Um, thanks, Professor. I appreciate that answer, but I'm not sure if that really answered my particular question. My question was more about what do you find them to be most confused about, but I do understand what, um, how those examples that you just gave, um, the frustration of trying to deal with uh, white supremacy racism, um, well, the issues that come with that, um, maybe Try that question again, but my, I'll go to my next question. Uh, personally, okay. Uh, personally, I find the biggest issue with housing access because uh, you study um, obviously housing. I find the biggest issue with housing access and affordability to be white supremacy racism and housing and common um, commodification. By, by, by commodification, I mean more, um, more concern with um, housing as a wealth building tool more so than a roof over your head a utility. Considering your studies of housing and white supremacy racism, what do you think are the biggest barriers to help of uh, the house? I'm sorry, house act um, accessibility and affordability. Well, I think you know you, you the, what you brought out about the commodification issue. Um, that that is, it, it's kind of a it's a barrier in and of itself because within you know the planning discipline, 
you know, there's a lot of emphasis placed on kind of wealth creation, you know, and using housing as a tool for that. Uh, but, you know, that that in and of itself is is part of the problem in many cases because it, it leads to, you know, the treatment of housing as a kind of financial resource. And, and you know, in recent times what that's meant is that, you know, investment companies and and kind of and and kind of business interests have really become much more pervasive in housing markets and actually resulted in some of the housing inflation that we've seen in terms of just the cost of housing and you know the displacement it's caused with potential you know homeowners and with residents who are renters who are being kind of you know forced out of neighborhoods that they no longer can afford and so the commodification issue is really important because if there isn't some type of a kind of, you know, limit placed on, you know, just how much markets can really control housing, then, you know, the ability to use housing as, as a kind of a, a, a resource that people can have for just kind of stability as a family or stability as a household becomes much more problematic because now there are kind of competing interests in terms of, you know, housing being a, an investment that appreciates as opposed to housing being a place that people can use as kind of a, a starting point or a foundation for meeting all their other daily needs, whether they're kind of needs to have access to recreation, needs to have access to family and community and, and faith groups, um, needs to be close to relatives, uh, and, and even needs to you know, kind of have access to schools and, and and other resources that people are trying to kind of, you know, tap into in order to have a high quality of life. And so the commodification issue is a real problem. It's become much more of an issue, you know, as everything, you know, related to housing has become more financialized. Um, thanks for that, Professor. Um, my next question is, um, as a professor, can you point out any current um, practitioners of urban planning who might be uh, racist white supremacists or or practices in the profession that are racist or white supremacists? And if not, are you aware of any practices that propose to do something about white supremacy racism but really don't do anything like Title VI reporting? Well, I, I think, um, you know, from from my own kind of interactions with people in the planning profession, um, you know, you do see, you know, kind of the, the influence of racism and white supremacy in terms of planners really kind of, you know, not taking, say, the public participation process seriously and, as a result, really kind of, you know, disregarding what community members and, and residents, you know, in communities that are being impacted by whatever planning developments being proposed, you're really being ignored in that process. And then, you know, planners just, you know, saying that they don't represent the community because they're referencing kind of developers or, or other people from outside the community that they have more interests aligned with um, in that whole planning process. And, and and so that would be kind of a good example of, of kind of where racism kind of finds its way into planning, where processes that were designed to make 
planning more transparent and more accessible to the community are actually kind of just, you know, done in a, you know, kind of, you know, non-committal way by planners as a perfunctory function. And then as a result, you know, people are actually being, being kind of, you know, left out of the process that was designed to include them. And so, you know, that's, that's one real clear place where continually you see, you know, the effort of planners not really being, you know, invested heavily. And then as a result, um, you know, any chance for, you know, the community to have a voice, you know, in the planning process is completely kind of expunged or kind of, you know, squashed out. And so that, that's, you, you see it a lot when you're working on projects that involve, you know, what's kind of coined as neighborhood revitalization, but it really is just an, kind of a new form of urban renewal where, you know, you know, black communities are targeted for redevelopment and residents are left out of the process and end up being displaced in some way. Um, that's, that's kind of a continuation of racism in, plan, in planning, you know, under the, under the guise of, you know, more progressive ideas about planning. Professor, thank you very much for that answer. I do see that a lot. I think the phrase they use for that is check the box. Um, this will be my final question. It goes back to the first question I asked about, um, you know, what people are most confused about, um, at least your students when they come into the urban planning profession, about, you know, and what they might say or think about racism themselves. Um, as, an, as an academic, how and or what do you teach your students to combat um, you know, white supremacy racism in the planning profession. So what tools do you give them or, or, or arm them with so that they can be better practitioners to um, disrupt end racism and produce better outcomes, particularly for black people? And I mean, my lines. Well, you know, I, I, I really try to emphasize that, you know, the role of the planner is to be an advocate um, for for groups that are left out of the planning process traditionally. And one of the things that, you know, I, I try to expose all my students to is is work by people like um, the Neckerman and Neckerman work that, you know, was published in a book called Gorillas in the Bureaucracy many years ago. And the whole idea was, behind that was that, you know, they were looking at how planners in the 1960s who were hired, you know, during the... Um, the, the great society programs were really frustrated in trying to kind of pursue their work because they were finding opposition within the planning departments themselves. And so they would, you know, kind of go outside of the halls of the walls of city hall and, you know, provide technical support information and basically, you know, kind of leak things to the community to kind of level the playing field. And so I, I encourage the students that I work with, to, you know, look for avenues to always kind of build capacity in the community, to provide, you know, people in the community with information, with resources, with their own um, ability to actually go out and do their own research, to kind of bring that information to city councils, to, you know, public forums, as, to counter efforts that, that might be working against their interests and to really kind of, you know, advocate for the community first because, you know, more vested groups, whether they're developers or 
the banking community or the business community or those who are not supportive of of communities that are being kind of taken advantage of and disinvested in, you know, really have the resources to do their own research. And so anyway, any time that planners have to make decisions about who to advocate for, who to work with in terms of kind of providing that kind of capacity building, they should always kind of try to work at the grassroots level. Much obliged non-Clemson grad. Uh, did you, uh, Dr. Silverman, I think his first question was, mm-hmm. what, is, what is it that your grad students, what aspect of white supremacy racism are they most confused about? And I know you talked about them being frustrated about certain aspects. Did you think of any components in, in terms of anything that your students they are confused about this part of how racism, white supremacy works when you get them in class. You know, I, I think they under they understand in many ways, you know, our, our students who are kind of from a younger generation, they, they understand kind of what racism and white supremacy is better than, you know, some of their professors and some of the people in the profession. And I think what they're most confused about is given that awareness, you know, how is it possible for, you know, people to continue to kind of, you know, be in denial of racism? And so that's where that frustration and confusion come together because, you know, they're almost like biding their time and waiting for that older generation to kind of move on so that they can hopefully step into the fold and do something different but i think the resistance and and what's behind it is most confusing to students and that would be the kind of the resistance coming from whites and and i mean that's what a lot of people are confused about you wonder you know why things can persist when it seems that racism is something that that most people should be able to understand and and acknowledge Context of white supremacy. Uh, Again, just going back to my definition, the problem. That's why I asked that question about are white people going to voluntarily desist once you get it that, oh, the problem is not that they're confused, that they're in denial, that they don't get it. They like it the way that it is. They want it to be this way. Oh, that's what I mean about this is a very different conversation if white people are indeed dedicated to racism, white supremacy. Anywho, and oh my goodness, there's other folks who died before I get their question. Dr. Silverman, do you recall? Because I keep anchoring anchor. I keep anchoring this May 2022 tops. We started with the 10 victims, 10 black victims. Do you recall? How old Peyton Gendron was at the time of the shooting? You mean the the shooter? Yes, sir. I believe he was like twenty one or twenty or something like that. He was in his early twenties, I believe. Uh, Nineteen, twenty, twenty one. Unless I misinform, Peyton Gendron was eighteen 
at the time of this shooting. There have been so many of these uh, young white shoot. I know Highland Park, uh, I think he was 21, but Peyton Gendron, I believe, was 18 at the time of these shootings. But even right. if he was 21, just to your point about he was, waiting. He was adult age, but, but young, right. Right. But the point about waiting for the older generation to die off, I point. I used mm-hmm. to pick Peyton, or excuse me, I used to pick Dylan Storm Roof, 2015, Charleston, South Carolina. But now I have so many. We can pick Peyton Gendron, or we can pick, as I said, the white fella up in uh, Robert Cremo the Third, I think is his name, up in Highland Park from last week. But waiting for a generation of individuals classified as white to die off—that's what that right there. There you go, <laughs> Clemson grad. There's the confusion right there. If they think this problem is. We need to wait for older white people in Buffalo, no less, where Peyton Gendron just came to town, 18 years old. You have students at the graduate level who think this problem in some way is connected to we just need to wait for old white people to die off. There you go, right there. We just had to ask it a few times. Um, we heard benefit and privilege a lot today, not from any of our callers or Gus T. I'm just pointing that out for folks who might be listening, especially new listeners. We heard benefit and privilege a lot today, but not from any of our callers or Gus T. That's something that I point out consistently, <clears throat> that white people are very comfortable talking about white supremacy, racism as benefit and privilege, not power and mistreatment. Dr. Silverman, can you think of a time where you have practiced racism, white supremacy? When I have practiced racism or white supremacy. I didn't have the conjunction I mean, there, but yes. Right. You're talking about practice as opposed to benefited from Correct. it. Well, you know, if, if I, if I'm, conscious of of me getting some type of privilege as a result of racism then that would be practicing it even if i'm practicing it you know kind of you know as a result of just kind of keeping myself in that position and so i mean anytime you allow the system to you know the racism to continue to influence outcomes um, you're practicing it just as a just as a you know part of that process. So I would assume that you know anybody who you know is is white, you know, is practicing racism, even if they're not you know fully conscious of it at the moment. If that's kind of what you're, I think that's what you're asking. You know, do I, am I aware of that that dynamic? No, I asked specifically. Can you tell us a time, a specific incident, moment? You're over 50, so I mean, hey, you have a half century of time on the planet where you can reflect a half century of life as a white man in the system of white supremacy. So can you look back over that time and pick out a moment where I think this is a time where I did practice racism, white supremacy? I'm thinking about that. I mean, I, 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 I'm that might be a part of the problem is that you, you know, in the moment aren't, aren't examining those issues because I'm sure those, there are times when I've, you know, been involved in something where I was practicing racism as a result of 
something that I was doing. But, you know, it, it gets to that question about kind of what is, you know, kind of being a part of a racist system as opposed to kind of being, you know, you know what people think of as an overt, overt racist. And so I, I'm sure I have been a part of, you know, a racist, you know, outcome, whether it was applying for college and, you know, having an advantage because I was white where others didn't and, and, that would be a practice of racism or, you know, purchasing a home and being able to be shown, you know, any house I wanted where a person of color might not have that, that same treatment and not questioning that at the time. And again, that would be, you know, a way that racism came into my life. And, you know, I simply went along with it because I was, getting those privileges. So those might be a couple examples. Or being pulled over by a police officer and knowing that my interaction would be framed or shaped by my whiteness and kind of, you know, understanding that that, that the outcomes that I would experience would be different. Okay, we move back over to the privilege list with uh, Dr. Peggy McIntosh. We, heard, we we spoke with her and heard her lengthy list of privileges. What I said before, white people can give you a long list of privileges and ways privileges. that they benefit from racism, white supremacy, but ways that you've practiced racism, you get the crickets every time. That's something that I point out as suspicious, especially as someone if they're over 50, like now, really, now. Mm-hmm. Anywho, and, and I want listeners not just think now out of all the people that we've heard on the broadcast so far, only one person has used the term benefit and privilege. And that is the person classified as white. But before when mm-hmm. I said, wow, I have to just sit here staggered. <laughs> I have to sit with it for a moment because we have so much to cover and move forward. It was when you were giving your response about white people. And I asked the question, are they going to voluntarily desist and you were saying that you know you've got some white people they're delusional they're brainwashed handicapped unable to get past racism they've got a long way to go to understand racism uh and then coming back to your response in that question you said racism came into my life i went along with it all these are very passively like I'm just hanging out and oh man, $20 is on the ground. Oh man, a little white supremacy racism just hopped in my pocket. Like there are lots of ways where white people describe racism in that manner. That is not possible for racism, white supremacy to exist in all areas of people activity. Has a non-white person ever accused you of practicing racism, white supremacy, Dr. Silverman? No, actually, they haven't. I mean, that might be—I might be the only person who can answer the question with that, but I haven't had that experience. We've heard that one before. Not total surprise there. Uh, can you think of, a, especially being over fifty, can you think of a time, uh, your years on the planet, where other white people have come to you to share racist jokes? If so, if so, uh, if you remember, can you share any of the racist jokes if you've heard any? I have I have heard racist 
um, things from white people before. I think maybe the most memorable at this moment I can think of is, and this kind of might ring a bell because it was with a, a famous racist person, was um, when I was younger, I lived in Southern California, and I used to go to a gym called Barlow's Gym in um, Torrance, California, and a lot of police officers would go to that gym. And one of them was named Mark Furman, and he used to talk about things with other police officers, like, um, you know, very kind of derogatory about African Americans, like that, you know, people would get killed over the last people a piece of fried chicken in a refrigerator. And so being exposed to that years before he became kind of famous or notorious, you know, for his involvement with the O.J. Simpson murder trial. Um, I, I knew who that person was, and I knew kind of, you know, what he, how he was responding to some of those questions. I had heard his bantering with, you know, other police officers who also, in many cases after he left, were kind of disgusted by the kind of things he said. And, um, yeah, you know, you, you encounter those people, and one of the things that you learn um, in life is that people who are kind of more overtly racist just assume that the people around them are as well. Uh, sometimes people don't say anything to them, you know, kind of face-to-face because sometimes they're just shocked or sometimes, you know, there are age differences or power differences. But, um, you know, that that kind of encounter happens, you know, more frequently than people expect. Sometimes it's more subtle, but um, that's a great example of when that, that type of thing happens. So, yeah, I've heard, of course, I've heard people make, you know, what people refer to as off-color jokes or even racist comments, but, um, you know, sometimes you have opportunities to kind of shut it down, and other times you just kind of get away from those people. I think more often than not, people just avoid those people. Wow. (laughs) I don't get Uh to tell my Mark Furman story that often, but it actually happened. Mark G.E.D. Furman. I cannot. Yeah. Ah. That's when I was in high school. So, you know, I was a younger kid then. Man, that is a historic moment. The kind we have asked many, 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 many white people over the years, Dr. Silverman. Have you heard racist joke? Because I love, you know, kind of deconstructing what's said in the jokes and all that. I think you can learn so much. They're so important. So many times white people will say they've heard a racist joke, but they can't remember. Or, yeah, I've heard we've even had a white person. I've heard thousands of them. But no, I don't remember. Can't share. But very rarely do we get someone to actually go ahead and share a joke with us, much less. Oh, yeah, I remember that time Mark Furman. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> Mark Furman. And even <laughs> Mark Furman before the trial. So when all of this starts, Orento James Simpson, and then they say this guy's going to be on the stand, and he goes back. F. Lee Bailey was a guest on our program. They have the exchange. Have you ever said nigger and all of that? You watched all of this and were like, I think I met that guy. 
Oh, I knew who he was. You, you, yeah, you remember some people forever. And so you already knew, like, uh-oh, that guy does say nigra and jokes and, uh, like, uh-oh, he li-, like, you knew all that immediately. Uh, yeah, I knew that uh, his his testimony wasn't believable to me based on my experience. Wow. Based on your experience with him, do you think he might have fabricated some evidence in the case against Mr. Simpson? I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if something like that did happen. Mm, mm, but mm. I don't know anything about how he actually conducted himself on the job because I didn't have the misfortune of working with him. <laughs> I cannot believe it. I can't. Everything leads back to O.J. Simpson. I'm t- Do you tell your grad students about, hey, <laughs> you want to hear about racism, white supremacy? I've, go ahead, go ahead. I've probably told students that story before, not in the classroom, but people just hanging around in the office. Everybody has their their 15 minutes of fame or their brush with fame, and that was mine. Jesus. Martin... I said Mark G.E.D. Furman on the stand with F. Lee Bailey. He said he dropped out of high school. He got a GED. He even went to detail. He said he got less than two years worth of credits spread out at three, one, two, three different community colleges. I'm in no way disparaging community college at all. I'm just saying, like, this is not a Rhodes Scholar. Mark G.E.D. Furman. I'm stunned. Uh, <laughs> let me get my quote and then we'll get our caller in. I'm stunned. Oh, I'm stunned. Mark Furman. The, uh, the book, we could have started there and just talked about O.J. Simpson and Mark Furman. Uh, the book Affordable Housing in U.S. Shrinking Cities from Neighborhoods of Despair to Neighborhoods of Opportunity. I'm skipping to Chapter 6, which is all about Buffalo, present-day Buffalo, no less. You write, this is the introduction uh, to the chapter. One byproduct of shrinking in Buffalo was the intensification of segregation in institutions like the public schools and urban housing markets. The nexus between shrinking and persistent racial segregation is discussed In this context, after reviewing the foundations for sustained shrinking and inequality in Buffalo, data are presented which show the extent to which segregation persists in the metropolitan area. I read this and I thought, wow, byproduct, that words are so important, byproduct. I looked at that and then I looked back. Are you familiar uh, with the book Race? Neighborhoods and Community Power, Buffalo Politics, 1934 to 1997. Yeah, I am. I I do know know of that book. I haven't looked at it for a long time, though. Okay. We had Dr. Krauss. He's the author of that book. We had him on the program uh, within the last 10 days or so. We're the syllabus for Buffalo. We had him on the program in the last 10 days or so. The word deliberate or different permutations of it, deliberately, deliberate, all that, uh, is in his book about a dozen times uh, and one of the main points like right up there if you were talking top three points of that book one of them maybe the is that all of this is greatly overstated and saying that black people in Buffalo 
suffered or so-called segregation, he used that term in his book, uh, in attributing that to deindustrialization and saying, oh man, we lost those jobs and black people and saying white people were deliberately dedicated to racism, white supremacy here way before any of the loss of factory jobs and deindustrialization byproduct is not accurate to discuss white that's the same thing I said before at the way beginning when you were saying systems of inequality where I said hey we have a system of white supremacy racism that dominates everything and one of the ways that racism is practiced is that gets minimized where racism becomes a so-called byproduct of these other factors uh, what's your response especially to that word uses byproduct Well, well, I mean, I, I think what, what your point is correct that you know the you know the race racism is kind of a driving force behind you know all the inequalities we see in cities in terms of whether it's housing segregation or you know income inequality or, or a variety of other outcomes that you see, and so I, I have to kind of. I'm not going to ask you to read that quote again and, and kind of let me try to remember how byproduct was used, but it certainly wasn't meant to kind of discount, you know, the impact of racism on on all the kind of structures that you see in cities because, I mean, that's kind of a central focus of a lot of the work I do is to really kind of use that as a starting point and then to talk about kind of all the manifestations that grow out of racism you know, in a, in a urban context, mostly because I'm, you know, I'm an urban scholar, but, um, yeah, I mean, you know, byproduct shouldn't be the, the driver or, or what, in terms of what, what was kind of in that quote that you just read. Okay. So maybe it, in the future that could be rephrased a little bit. It's, it goes back to what I said about that minimizing. Words are very important. Racism is not used in this chapter at all, much less white supremacy. And when you, Dr. Uh, Krauss's book, now he doesn't even have racism in the title. I raised issue with them, uh, with him, with that mm -hmm. as well, to make things specific. Uh, we're not talking about race. We are talking about white supremacy, racism. That is why black people have struck like forever in Buffalo to have housing and this is way beyond deindustrialization or shrinking populations or anything like that like as you the driving force not just in Buffalo but the known universe and language like this and it comes up consistently uh, in not just your work but consistently when I read the works of white people and non-white people where this is not made clear and I'm just of the opinion either I think the caller asked before are we about producing justice and solving this problem or are we about anonymity great question that's something that I think about when I read a, a paragraph like this where this is not clear at all and it even seems like it's minimizing we're in a system of white supremacy racism where white people in Buffalo and beyond are dedicated to opposing correct housing and everything else for black people, non-white people. Uh, let me see. I want to get to one more. Let me just get to it. Retired firefighter in Florida. Did you have a question for Dr. Robert M. Silverman? Yes, sir. I, I think I have two. Uh, 
I think uh, the guest could, uh, should be uh, pretty knowledgeable in answering this first question. Uh, with the battle that's going on uh, in Eastern Europe, uh, uh, in Ukraine, uh, do you think that uh, the U Ukrainians who are leaving the area will get uh, residence in this part of the world that is called the United States and uh, have home have home ownership or access to homes in areas where non-white people uh, reside in their unstable uh, housing situations. First part of that question is I know that that there are special visas being issued to some Ukrainians already as part of kind of refugee emergency refugee assistance. So I mean the you know will they get access to this part of the world? Um, yes, I think m most of them are staying in Europe um, in terms of the raw numbers. But um, like I can go back to Buffalo. Um, every time there's been you know some type of a, a, a war um, abroad or, you know, a refugee, you know, kind of migration issue. There have been advocates in Buffalo who have tried to kind of secure uh, visas for people to come here. Um, it, it happened with the Burmese population in the 90s, uh, with Afghani refugees more recently, with people from Somalia, although that was more of a movement towards Minnesota um, in a lot of ways, but there's still a, a, a representative population of Somali refugees in, in the Buffalo area. And I, I know there are also, you know, people advocating for Ukrainians to get visas and resettle here as well. Um, where they end up moving, um, you know, in, in the city of Buffalo, a lot of that migrant resettlement happens kind of on the north side of Buffalo which is is a kind of a racially mixed area but it's it has a larger kind of hispanic population than black population um and so there aren't you know a, a lot of kind of refugee resettlement populations that kind of you know kind of take housing that is in kind of majority black neighborhoods to as much in, in cities like Buffalo, but wherever people kind of get resettled, um, you know, where that supply of kind of subsidized housing is, is present or where, you know, housing units are available is, is where people end up getting placed. And in a lot of cases, those are in kind of minority communities or black and brown communities. So there, I mean, the impact would be there, but, um, I guess that's that's the most I can say about that without knowing the details about, you know, how many visas are coming. I know that a lot of the agencies that assist refugees do most of their work on the west side of Buffalo, which is a little bit different kind of population mix. And so every every place is going to be a little bit different in terms of where they where refugee populations resettle. There might be more kind of, you know, competition for housing in black communities and other cities. I just don't know how they how that would work in other places. Okay. 
my next question and last question is, uh, first I'll have to ask you, are you familiar with Carolyn Bryant, white female, 88 years old? No. Are you familiar with Emmett Till? Okay, uh, if you're familiar with Emmett Till, then you, I would think you must know Carolyn Bryant. She was the person of interest. His accuser. It, yes. Is that what you're saying? Okay. Yes, sir. My question is, do you think that the warrant for her arrest should be uh, recharged and placed on her to get arrested? Is she still alive? Yes, sir. Well, I think that that is something that if if it's not passed, <laughs> I wouldn't have brought it up if she was dead. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I I wouldn't I wouldn't be against that investigation being reopened. Um, if if that was going to be pursued somewhere, I certainly would, you know, be interested in learning about you know how that played out if it happened even just for kind of, you know, kind of justice sake, you know, she should have some kind of accountability for, you know, you know, kind of accusing him of, of, of raping her and then being murdered as a result. I mean, should it be monetary, physical <laughs> effort to obtain, to, yes, the place her under arrest, and prosecutor. You mean for the state to put its resources behind that? Well, I mean, yes. I, I wouldn't. Like I said, I, I, I would. Fied, um, given that all we, you know, we know about, you know, about the case, and about, you know, kind of her, you know, her accusations being completely false. It seems that if if they could. If, they, if the state wanted to reopen that investigation, um, then there isn't any any reason to not do it because of a you know a, a monetary cost. You know they have plenty of attorneys on state salaries who could kind of pursue that case. I mean, there are hundred-year-old Nazis and Nazis are white people who are who are picked up every other day somewhere in the world, including here. Yeah. They, so, you know, they, you know, they extradite people from South America and the United States to go back and stand trial in, in Israel all the time. And so, or go to back to or deport people to Germany. And so, you know, we should have similar kinds of standards. I mean, the justice system, you know, shouldn't just stop because, you know, a certain amount of time has elapsed. If, if there's still, you know, an issue to be addressed in the courts and a person who should be tried. Okay. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter in Florida. I think we nabbed all of our callers. Just, I was looking back over the chapter that's specifically about uh, Buffalo in the affordable housing book. Uh, and mm -hmm. this is, I moved down, this is on page 123. Uh, kind of very, very bottom of the page. One legacy of Buffalo's decline is race 
and class segregation. And you go on to talk about how scholars have talked about this extensively. And that's one right there where I would say it's the same thing, legacy, uh, because it makes it seem like something that happened before is exerting this influence. And what I'm saying is that this is ongoing debt. And I mean, that's what the evidence is. It's not like the racists in Buffalo in 1920 or 1950 and they all as the example you said they all died off and just the things that they set in place 75 years ago that's why things are like that today that's not it at all this has been dedication to racism white supremacy through and through not legacy and it's it's here twice it's not legacy this is not something that's blamable just on oh we lost population or we lost our factory jobs and deindustrialization and hit cities like us it's not that and race and class now they may have class bifurcation in buffalo but again the problem here even within this same report and multiple reports with the vacancies and what have you the people who are having the problems in buffalo the most problems are the people classified as black not poor white people and all the rest and again Peyton Gendron Joseph G. Christopher they did not go to the east side of Buffalo looking for poor white people or any other poor people to kill they were just looking for black people to kill is that am I making sense in terms of that same plan or am I not reading it correctly Well, I mean, you're 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 making sense in terms of the, you know, the point that that the kind of the historical patterns that we're describing, you know, in in the book about the different cities, you know, are continuing into the present. I, I I'm trying to find my book, but somewhere, you know, we t- we talk about the future and how those 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 trends and those patterns won't those things won't be broken. Those there won't be change. Unless you know, there's both. Unless there's you know a change in in policies and programs and the way that we think about you know in that case affordable housing you know in different cities and to, to kind of understand that you know cities have been losing population and and declining and and the people who still live in those cities are, are you know more and more you know kind of African American. Uh, Latino and, and people of color, and so that they're, you know, kind of, you know, kind of living in places, you know, after, you know, most of the benefits and resources, you know, that 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 people garnered from the good times in those cities have been long gone, and so, you know, there's the issue about a legacy, you know, of, you know, kind of the decline of the cities that kind of has set the stage for the continuation of, of discrimination and inequality in the present that, that we're trying to talk about. But I guess we're referencing, you know, the kind of historic data in those points. And so we're talking about that, that history and how it's kind of led into the present. And so we're, I, I don't, there's not a, it's not an effort to kind of deny that, that racism is a, is a current, and lived experience today, but it just it's it's something that we I talk about in other work that I that I do other than this particular project, which was just looking at the housing patterns that led up to the shrinking city 
phenomenon that we were examining in that book. We, we looked at Buffalo, Cleveland, New Orleans, Pittsburgh. and Detroit. Detroit and Pittsburgh. Yeah. You all even, it's there to some degree, even in this book, in terms of being more direct about the white supremacy, racism, how that, as you said, the driving force behind all this. The bottom mm-hmm. of 132, you write Hollander and uh Cahill, yeah, that's it. Collander and Cahill used content analysis to examine Buffalo's 2006 framework for regional growth and concluded that the thrust of the planning document was focused on recommendations for increased investments in infrastructure and other revitalization projects designed to encourage growth while right-sizing strategies were only given lip service. Even more striking, past concerns about regional equity and desegregation were virtually absent from Buffalo's contemporary planning proposals. That's what I mean, the sort of thing. This being totally absent, we haven't given a thought, we don't have a sentence to this. That's not delusional. That's not denied. That's the other D word that I said was in Dr. Krause's book almost a dozen times. That is deliberate. We don't care about this. We are dedicated to white supremacy racism. And that's why I said at the very beginning in talking, if that's true, we should just say that that would make things much more clear in terms of what we're up against. So your students won't have that confusion about, Hey, I get this and I'm in grad school. Why don't you all get it and do something about this? Does that, am I being logical? Mm-hmm. Yes. Bowl context. I think we've nabbed all of our callers. Make sure I didn't miss any of the folks who dialed in. Yes. Didn't miss any of the folks who dialed in. Glad we got all of them. Uh, our guest, we've been chatting it up, Dr. Robert M. Silverman, getting more information about the history of Buffalo and why all this happened. I guess even before we, we let you go, you were right there. You've been doing all this research. You were there, I presume, in Buffalo when the shooting and all of that took place. You heard all this. An 18-year-old white man comes to your city deliberately to kill black people. Your response to all of that was, given the work that you do? Well, I mean, I, I re- you know, I remember when it happened, and you know, it, it came on the national news, and and you know, I, you know, you want to say that you're shocked that it's happened, but you you almost aren't surprised because um, you understand that you know there are these these groups out there that that you know have been kind of cultivating you know people who you know are prone to you know doing violent racist things and that this particular person you know one of one of the downsides of kind of the information revolution is that he could go on on the internet kind of do research on communities using census data, and even, you know, we worked on this report that I talked about earlier about, you know, Buffalo's, um, you know, state of the black community, 1990 to the present, and you almost wonder if he went on a website and found that report where he could, you know, identify where, you know, he could find, you know, know, large concentrations of African Americans and then kind of scope those areas out to find places to do violence. And so, you know, because racism is, is still kind of a, you know, a, a centerpiece, you know, in society, people who want to do kind of violent acts 
like, you know, shoot, do a shooting at a tops, you know, have all the information they need at their fingertips to go and kind of plan those things and then kind of carry them out. And then, of course, you know, the gun laws made it, you know, easy for him to get weapons and, and go and kind of commit the acts. And so all of that makes it, it was shocking, but yet at the same time, you know, you're, you're not totally surprised because we've seen enough of these, these types of, you know, race-motivated race shootings happen in the last few years and even in the last decade that, you know, people in Buffalo were angry. I think that was kind of the first impulse that, that it happened. And then, you know, you know, then, you know, we're committed to, you know, trying to change things, at least in the sense that they, they did, you know, very quickly change some of the laws related to, you know, gun possession and, you know, the red flag laws and things like that in the state of New York once, once, once the shooting did happen. So it was shocking, but not, but not surprising. Even less so if one is informed about uh, Joseph T. Christopher. Uh, and just for the record, in my view, I do not process that as local out, at least among white people, individuals classified as white in Buffalo or even New York at large. I do not process that as process that as we are upset about racism, white supremacy, and that these black people could be killed and targeted in this manner by some racist 18 year old. We're going to change gun laws, particularly in the context of most recently the Supreme Court decision saying, hey, the concealed carry in New York State, that is not lawful. So that being overturned, so now it's easier for people to get access to concealed carry. I think Governor Hochul, when she went in to do the session to, to make the amendments, I think she said, hey, I think this is going to increase gun violence, probably against non-white people especially those who are lower income and what have you but you know comply with the law of the land definitely not in that context i don't i do not see any of that as anger uh about all of this again hey they haven't even mentioned joseph christopher so i think you mentioned it in your report that white people can give the appearance of being against racism when that is not actually the case they would have to show me yeah, a lot yeah, I more. think that um I think the local reaction the, the immediate knee-jerk gut reaction was that you know it was seen as a person from outside the area coming to do you know violence here and to and to bring race his his racist you know attitudes and beliefs you know into the community and even though there are racist attitudes and beliefs in the community um, I think people, uh, you know, both white and black and, and people of other races were all kind of, you know, angry that somebody came here from outside to bring to bring that kind of violence and, and accept, kind of aggravate that kind of violence here. And that was that was kind of a, a universally kind of expressed thing. You know, if you watch the news media reports the day of the shooting, when the governor and the, the state attorney general and the local, you know, district attorneys and, and other, you know, kind of officials were all on TV together, they were they were kind of shaken. They were angry in that sense. And so, you know, one of the problems is that, you know, race, race, racist and violence, 
that happens in a community often is kind of, you know, kind of portrayed as coming from outside, and that might be a way not to kind of talk about racism in the community. But I think still at the same time, you know, there was kind of a consensus, you know, across the board in Buffalo that, you know, the city was attacked and, you know, everybody who was targeted, you know, was a member of that community, regardless, you know, regardless of race. And so the, the local immediate response was kind of one of outrage. I have seen all of that before, uh, the faux outrage or what have you. They were really outraged. Let me see how well the folks in Eastside are treated. Let's see how well they get this grocery store problem taken care of. In fact, let's even see how well victims like Keisha Douglas are treated as opposed to just having individuals classified as white say they are outraged. That is, you know, at least in my opinion, not worth a whole lot at all. That's why this problem has continued and continued and continued. In fact, I've seen when white people get upset about things, they make things happen like immediately. I've not seen that with Buffalo at all. I haven't even seen them mention Joseph G. Christopher. That would be one. Like if we want to be honest about this, like, hey, this has happened before. Let's make sure that we never have to talk about a white killer coming to East Buffalo to kill black people. We're never going to have that story reported again. They didn't even do that. Yeah, that was definitely, you know, a, a lapse and, a, a, you know, something that should have happened and something that should have been talked about even before before the shooting happened. And so, you know, hopefully that that, you know, more attention to that issue can kind of get it out there so that that, that they can use that to prevent future violence. But, you know, it, that hopefully it shows like yours will help kind of, you know, move that forward. I know I learned about it, so I'll spread the word. It's been two months, basically, uh, and I have not seen anything. Well, I've been a paragraph here or there. Uh, If they were going to do it, I would say, hey, the time is nigh. Maybe, you know, today or next week or what have you. I was going to wrap, but since you said that, I have been asking white people. I've been making a compensatory investment request because I think this is super important we're reading about this uh joseph g christopher in our book club have been since these killings happened in may uh but i would love to come to your city buffalo and do some research uh for two weeks uh go hang out at the university of buffalo library and even go talk to the folks at some of the black newspaper they have a lot of great content on the 22 caliber killings from 40 years ago but anyway i've been asking individuals classified as white my compensatory mm-hmm. investment request, would you be willing to provide me with round trip travel and lodging for two weeks of research in your great city, Buffalo, New York, to research this case and the more recent killing as well, not to leave that on the back burner. But is that something, Dr. Silverman, you'd be willing to do? I can if you, I can get you in touch with um people who are at the University of Buffalo who have access to those types of travel resources and and assist you in that kind of request, um, whether it's through my school or, um, you know, one of the um, 
Centers for Health Inequality at the University of Buffalo, where I know people who have budgets for the, that type of travel and fellowship, and at least, you know, kind of assist you in pursuing that. You know, I, I'm not, I don't, I don't have, you know, a center or a budget for that, but I know people who do. So I, I'd be perfectly happy to kind of help you, you know, request that kind of help and that kind of support to come for some type of a fellowship and even, you know, give you an opportunity to kind of do a speaking engage, engagement at my school, which might help to fund some effort like that as well. But that's something I can't commit to over the telephone on the radio show, but I, I could make a commitment to kind of work with you on that moving right now and see if I can find resources. Let me know uh, if you have a commitment to work on that, see what resources folks that you can talk to and being at these would hopeful or at minimum, these would be your colleagues at least at the same institution. So uh, let's see what it's been my experience. Like this is not asking for a Lamborghini or, you know, a space trip to Pluto, like going to no. Buffalo for two weeks but I can, is pretty I meager. Can we can we can exchange a little bit more information in terms of brainstorming about that you know on email or after the after this show and i can i can make a couple requests on your behalf grand we shall see i would love it not that i'm excited about it. let me make sure i'm clear i am not excited about going to buffalo full stop but i am excited about doing research and getting more detail about joseph d christopher but i was never enthusiastic about going to western new york especially after it gets cold two thumbs down for cold weather i will uh drop dr silverman an email and uh yes see what resources if you can come up with any and see if we can make some progress to get gus t to buffalo for research uh it has been a hoot sure going over your research getting more details about buffalo and why all of this happened uh we've been chatting it up dr robert m silverman uh right there the university sure. of buffalo although he doesn't live in buffalo proper uh much obliged for hanging out with us for a few hours this evening it has been a pleasure have learned quite a bit sir great well it was good talking to you too thank you so much we will uh be in touch uh, again, Dr. Robert M. Silverman. Uh, enjoy the rest of your evening, sir. Right. Look forward to it. Thank you. For sure. For sure. Context of white supremacy. We will take a quick break. Rick James. Rick James. Rick James. Take a quick break, and then we'll see what listeners have to think. I will ask listeners to think, man, like... Let me look at my list again. We'll take a quick commercial so I can process it out. But this is the think on, right, as we're going to commercial. So we've talked to Anna Blotto, white woman. Sean Lay, white man. Professor, wrote a book about racism in Buffalo. Uh, Neil Krause, white man, wrote a book about racism in Buffalo. Now, Dr. Robert M. Silverman. None of these white people, and he uh, works at the University of Buffalo and has lived there for 20 years. None of these people know about Joseph G. Christopher. Now, again, I said last week, hey, we read about half of the book. Home stretch, as they say. 
maybe Gus T is an idiot. Maybe this is not really that important. These, I mean, hey, they kill a lot of black people all the time, right? That's not unique. I mean, even, hey, he killed, what, like 15 black people approximately? Tried to kill a few others and failed? Whoop-de-doo. More than that died in the Atlanta child murders, right? Killing a lot of black people, even, per se, is not... You know, okay, it's many cases where that's happened. How many how many folks can even name two of the black people who were victims in the Tuskegee syphilis experiment that we've talked about every day for like two years? Right. So maybe this is not that important of a case. I submit that it is, and especially given what happened in May of this year. What the hell? How is that? You live here. You teach about racism at the university, not at the kindergarten in uh, Buffalo. And you don't know about this? Big victim called in last week and he said, what the world? I think you're practicing racism. Like, this is not logical. What I like. I said, you have two choices. How well researched are these folks? If it was Gus, this is the way I started evaluating because last week I was not definitive about it. I needed big victim to kind of, yes, this is important. Like that's embarrassing. I had to think about it this way. So if a cow's listener came to me and said, hey, Gus T, someone asked me to do a speaking engagement or, you know, do a project or whatever, talking about Peyton Gendron, what's going on in Buffalo. I did my report or what have you. I want you to check it out. I'm like, oh, okay, okay, okay. You didn't mention Joseph Christopher. <laughs> what would I think? Like if they asked, like, give me, a, give me a grade. Grade my project. You know, tell me what you think. You know, I listen to the cows. I appreciate your information. I've learned a lot. Brother Gus, give me a grade. They would get an F. I didn't even have to think. It didn't take me any time. It didn't take me any seconds. If somebody came to me, said, I write, I do research on Buffalo and racism. I don't know anything about Joseph G. Christopher, but I wrote a book about Buffalo and racism. F. I did a video or documentary about Buffalo and racism. I don't know about Joseph G. Christopher. F. Last week, I was not definitive. I had to think about it. I had to look at it in a different context. One of you, non-Clemson grad, Miss C, big victim in Alabama, retired firefighter in Florida, karma, any of you all, one of you all came up. Man, I just did my project, got my video footage and everything, got some photos and everything. It's going to be great talking about racism in Buffalo. No, pick anything. You were going to talk about Wisconsin. That's what I said. Specifically, you were going to talk about Milwaukee and racism no mention of Jeffrey Dahmer what am I to think I think Miss C said man did they make a pact white people to say we're just not going to talk about this Joseph G. Chris like what people how, how many people do we have to talk to that are affiliated with the University of Buffalo before we talk to a white person who's affiliated with them writes about racism and does know about Joseph G. Christopher. I'm asking that to ponder. What does that mean? 
What do we make of that? Is that even important? Making a, you know, making a big to do about nothing. Nobody else knew about it either. It's not like the black people were informed about it. We got lots of black people who lived in New York State at the time these events were happening. They said they have no recollection of this at all. That this was the big prize. You get fifty million dollars. Who is Joseph G. Christopher? They would have been singing the blues, as they say. As would Gus T. Hey, I wouldn't have won either. I just would have had, they would have had to give something real nebulous. Like, did something kooky happen in Buffalo in some time in the 1980s? And I, most I could have done was like, yeah, I think something did happen where they were killing black people. That I could have won. If it was anything more than that, I wouldn't have won either. Anywho, we'll take a quick break. We'll check in, see what folks have to think. Uh, thoughts from Dr. Silverman. And in aggregate, we've heard quite a few white guests from Buffalo. We are the syllabus. It's not even close. You can't talk about Peyton Gendron and have no mention of Joseph G. Christopher. And it, it should be like substantive. Compare and contrast. What does it mean to be white? That whole nonsense about we got to wait for these old white people to die off. Whoa. Joseph G. Christopher was 25 when he was chopping out black people's hearts in Buffalo. Peyton Gendron, 18. These are not geriatric racist hunters. Not by a long shot. Pardon the pun. Take my commercial break. We'll be right back. Context of white supremacy. And from the late 1960s, after the death of Martin Luther King and the riots and the upheavals and all like this, and black people with their fists in there and all like that, and trying to stumble and fumble and find their way and get focus, the white supremacists made a blueprint and put it in action. And that is, I'm going to have these people so confused, they don't even know what they started out to do. And by the late 1970s, they had just about completed it. And we've been on that ever since. And you mentioned something very important. They are more comfortable than ever. But see, it's like making gorillas comfortable in a cage or monkeys or pandas. You still got them in a cage, but they're comfortable. See, so give him some bling bling. It's like giving an animal a brand new car and training the animal to ride up and down the street in it. And then you stand back and point at the animal. Like one white man said in the late 1950s, he said he doesn't care what kind of car a Negro has. He said he's still a nigger. Nothing changed. Context of white supremacy. He mentioned the Buffalo riots or he mentioned right. He didn't mention the Buffalo riot. He just said he talked to his students about riots and uh, at, at the beginning of his class and how they impact cities. I was wondering, wow, does he talk about the book anatomy of a riot Buffalo 67? Cause I have that book. Like I said, I mean, man, Gus T as we continue to have these white guests come on the program to talk about Buffalo, Gus T should be sounding like Rick James is my cousin. I got family in Erie County. 
I should not be sounding like somebody who I never heard of Buffalo. I don't know nothing about Buffalo. And like, no, not at this point. Like the amount of material that I have read, not just about the Joseph G. Christopher case, Buffalo in general. Oh, man. Gus T should be uh, Floyd Mayweather metaphor. Like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> like, act a fool. Say whatever I want to. You can say whatever you want to. Like, I should have a whole lot of information. You saw some of that today to have him say that man industrial or shrinkage, meaning loss of population, that that's what intensified segregation, racism, white supremacy in Buffalo. Like that is nonsense. And Dr. Neil Krause, he was just with us. He didn't know about Joseph G. Christopher either. But at minimum, he said hey, that's one of the main themes of his book. We t- I almost made that a sound clip uh, for the program today where he said, no, man, uh, hey, Racism was here way before population loss and shrinkage and vacant buildings and all that. Hatred of the Negra was thriving in the Niagara Falls region and elsewhere. Anywho, uh, I will see what folks thoughts were about the our guest before we get ready to wrap things up. I just want to go back to point out he said he heard Mark Furman making racist jokes like that alone is legend. Not that, you know, whatever, whatever, but man, uh, that it, it reminded me of the book we're reading even cause they had the incident where the white child said that he met Joey before he was arrested and all this. And he was talking about, Hey, use those bricks to throw at Negroes. Remember that part anyway, but he meets Mark Furman. What in the world? Mark G.E.D. Furman, high school dropout. Um, I do want to go back just the point I highlighted it uh, where he was talking about. I asked him, are white people going to voluntarily voluntarily desist from practicing racism? He said, you have many white people who are delusional, brainwashed. They have a handicap about racism. They are unable to get past racism and they have a long way to go and then when he talked about himself when I asked him if he could think of times where he practiced racism he said I can think of times where racism came into my life where I went along with it like you're on the raft it was a beautiful day in Seattle today we had our summer day today even though the foliage has begun Uh, but it's like you're at the the beach or whatever and you got your inner tube and you're just floating along and oh no racism just came into my life oh well I'm just going to float along with it Hey, Bob, what are you doing? I'm just floating along with racism. You just float. I'm just floating along. I'm not. I'm just I'm just floating along. Peyton, I just Peyton gender. He just floated on to the east side. I guess that's what happened. Joey, I guess he just floated to the tops and killed old Glenn Dunn. Just floating along. Hmm. Uh, let's see. Anything else? I get them later. The folks who are with us, did you have uh, commentary from the guest? Non Clemson grad, uh, caller at 2262, retired firefighter. Nothing stood out. No observations. 
Well, he um, did use a lot of verbiage, and at first it was kind of confusing me. Um, but through the course of the conversation, I was able to um, adjust and uh, uh, answer my question. But again, he used a lot of verbiage. And I guess, like he said, from the academic and scholarly type, uh, that's just how they speak. But yeah. I do think that that's one of the ways that white people deliberately practice racism, lots of uh, jargon. And I did ask, I made that request at the beginning that he lower his vocabulary level, right? So that make it accessible so that everybody can easily access the information. I think that's one of the ways uh, I've said this for years uh, because it, the way racism, white supremacy is practiced, it's always our fault. So if I'm speaking and you don't understand and I use as I, I explained I said they'll take 5,000 words to answer a question when it could take 15 if you get confused and all of that oh it's on you see you ignorant niggers and you don't pay attention with it no practicing racism where you're being unnecessarily loquacious make it plain that's the title of Malcolm X's documentary make it plain Be, we can double down on that request if they are deviating from that uh, folks can especially if it's a white well we don't have non-white guests nah. white guests come on the program like for sure uh, say something if I neglected to make that request which sometimes I do uh, hey feel free lower your vocabulary level let's make the content as accessible as possible racists have deliberately kept us out of school right right so uh, let's see any other commentary folks wanted to make sure they got in grand I thought that was uh, important I think non-Clemson grad he asked the question about what were the grad students most confused about and at first he said oh they're not confused they're just frustrated now do they think he's racist that would be one right there let's see if he's confused now upon further kind of prodding uh, in on that question uh, where he said that hey why don't they why don't they get it I don't understand I get why don't they get it why are they in denial about this and just waiting for the older folks to die off there is the confusion they do not understand what and again and Buffalo like if that's really what it is that they think this is just these Donald Trump Paula Dean Donald Sterling Joe Biden Bill Clinton Hillary Clinton once they you know die off shuffle on out of here this problem will be taken care of if that's how they think there you go that is astronomical and again confusion these folks were alive for Dylan Storm Roof these folks were alive Peyton Gendron he guessed he was guessing uh, aging him up saying he was 21 and 2018 18 
apparently the students are very confused or at least the non-white students very confused about what it means to be white racism white supremacy and then some other race talk about confusion like whoo he said a third of the grad students he said a third of them are uh black a third of them are latino and then this is out of 60 percent or excuse me out of the 40 percent that are non-white and then a third are some other race some other race white non-white very important that confusion lots of confusion uh anywho um much obliged hope for folks got something constructive uh i will have to collate i did not know we were going to have so much content on buffalo uh amassed over the past month and a half but hopefully uh, it has been worthwhile uh, and again folks should think about that that's something that i'm thinking about so all these white people nobody knows about joseph g christopher are they lying to us is this not really that important did white people make an agreement we're not going to talk about this what do we think has to be something uh, in terms of how it is that you have and a, a wide age range like younger white people in their 20s older white people 50s who are not informed about this lived in Buffalo for 20 years some of them were born in Buffalo what in the world we can ponder on that one in the book club as we proceed as well in book club on Thursday 8 p.m. Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific uh, we will continue with absolute madness uh, they have indicted Joseph G. Christopher the trial the wackiness even in fact that word delusional that will be important in the book club as we proceed crazy delude the people who practice racism white supremacy are delusional deranged crazy I don't think that's the way that we should think about racists but I could be in error using logic anywho uh much obliged for your time and energy uh, let us be constructive with the rest of our summer uh, sobriety would be best for many many reasons if you are out and about and you see someone being hostile loud non-white or white exit this is not a time for confrontations with strangers you should be thinking this person may be armed if you're not ready to die, kill right now, exit. Nothing to discuss. System of racism, dangerous times. If you're in a vehicle, you're sober, buckled up, not on a mobile device. We need all of our attention and we're trying to avoid contact with race soldiers as best we can. Race soldiers, badge or no. That said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time 
replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, brother. A victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned.